You're listening to the 16th and final episode of Season 3 of the Wicked Podcast. I'm Mike Moore. This podcast is about strict rules-focused Christianity not working, but is not an attack on faith. It's about trying to maintain some connection to God despite everything. It's also about depression, words, and music. Each episode is me pontificating and ruminating around a song from my concept album, Death in Tiny Spoonfuls. Episode 16, Vultures in the Belfry. This song was meant to be the closing bracket on the album, being a reprise of the first song on the album. In the first song, a wandering observer trudges into the middle of what I grew up in, and there's a lot of soul death there, hence vultures. In this end song, he trudges back out again. Naturally, my own actual story was that I was born into it and got kicked out rather than walked in and then walked away under my own steam. And that's really quite different. Why vultures? Well, part of it was how they circled in the sky, looking for some living creature to die, or at least show signs of weakness and possibly falling over and swooping right down on that. Also, how they huddled around in circles, picking these things down to the very bones. I was raised to be like these vultures. Religion was serious business, swooping down on any sign of weakness or wavering worldview we saw getting pecked to death if we showed any weakness or wavering ourselves. And I sure do pick away at things until there's no meat left on them bones, them bones, them dry bones. In a place of dryness, with little left alive there, it's kind of like this. And that's how I grew up. That's what I learned life was all about coping with. I imagine the average churchgoer sees the Godhead as one lofty concept, group of persons, or idea, and their church and pastor as mere human helpers down here in connecting with God. Many brethren people don't see it that way at all. To them, there is God all right, but there is no church. There are no pastors. In fact, there is no brethren or the meeting. Even if their group splits into two groups, each of which isn't dealing with the other group, there were no groups. There's still no brethren. There's only God. Even if they go to meetings five or six or ten times a week, there's still no church group, no Christian community they're part of. There is only God whom they're dealing with. To them, that outlook looks and feels like a more direct, closer relationship with God than creating and maintaining a Christian church group. They're very proud of the idea that they're dealing directly with God, in person, without the need of any church stuff or church people between him and them. But it seems to me that often they are simply allowing the meeting to be their God. There is no the meeting. And at meeting, God is doing everything, not us. So it's not our problem. Direct any and all complaints heavenward. The lyrics of this song expressed annoyance in 1991 at both sides of the particular big stupid church division we were having right then, because though I'd heard all about various previous divisions, I had a front row seat on this one. It colored everything we were doing as a Christian group all week long for years after the fighting was over. Each side was shameless about seeking the other's destruction, and each was boastingly proud of its own correctness and derisive and vengeful as to the other's error. As Kurt Vonnegut said about Nazis and similar, 
We didn't want to leave other people alone. We wanted to hate, en masse, without limit, feeling that God was with us, hating who we hated right there beside us. Now, what I take away from the first John episode of the Bema podcast is this. When it came to Christian practice, praxis, we were often getting Christian love and Christian liberty wrong, to the extent that our Christian love and Christian liberty were only theoretically real at all and visibly inferior to any run-of-the-mill, rank, unbelieving, worldly person's love and liberty. Jesus and many, many others in the Bible claimed that love was at the heart of summing up the law, or anyone even recognizing that one was a Christian to begin with. Well, we brethren folk did something funny with all of those sermons and lessons and messages in our Bibles. We kept changing the subject. Jesus gives a sermon about love, And while discussing that sermon, we're inevitably soon talking about truth and obedience, by which we mean adherence to the brethren way of thinking and living. John gives a whole lesson on love, and we're almost immediately talking about disobedience to brethren expectations and how that means we have to cut ourselves off from people who behave like that. Paul writes a whole thing about liberty, and we're soon talking, again, about correct doctrine and obedience to the brethren way. But all these divisions we had were over liberty we wouldn't allow people, and love we didn't feel for them, let alone show them. The malice and vindictiveness was plain to see. And of course, if you'd asked anyone on any side, do you hate the other side? They'd have aggressively denied it. Of course not. They loved absolutely everyone. But the fact is, they'd do anything to bring the others down, and they spewed purest venom about them, not pausing if any quivering little facts got in the way of this juggernaut of character assassination, this messy divorce, this culture war, this ecclesiastical genocide that they were enacting. For the people driving the thing, the spite was the point. It got them up in the morning, Sunday morning. It fueled Bible studies, sermons, and prayers. I remember hearing guys on the side I stayed with praying performatively, as if to God, but really to ourselves, thankful that we had correctly stayed, rather than sinfully and rebelliously left, like some people we could mention. We thank thee, O Lord, that we are not like unto those other brethren, who are certainly not our brothers any more, given how they're living. And it was just so simple, wasn't it? You couldn't just go off and start a new church, now could you? In the Victorian era, the early Plymouth Brethren had been vehement that we were not a church at all, let alone one we'd set up and could presumably now be held accountable for the behavior, teaching, actions, effects, and clear failings of. And, I am told, people would go to their actual churches first thing Sunday morning, then later on do Bible study and breaking a bread with a group of brethren in Plymouth, England, who were from any number of other churches. And people heard about what those folks were doing in Plymouth, these folks who claimed to not be a church and not have members. But soon enough, that changed completely. Churches being what they often are, members were asked to declare a membership with only the one church, and many went brethren, the non-church, the non-choice, the only correct path. Groupthink was certainly happening. 
Here's Mike from Red Letter Media reading a definition of the psychological concept of groupthink coined in the 1970s in their YouTube video about the show Midnight Mass. I'll give you the definition uh, coined in 1971. Okay. It's a psychological term, a phenomenon that occurs when a group of well-intentioned people makes irrational or non-optimal decisions spurred by the urge to conform or the belief that dissent is impossible. Mm. The problematic or premature consensus that is characteristic of groupthink may be fueled by a particular agenda, or it may be due to group members valuing harmony and coherence above critical thought. Mm. So this song is about there needlessly being two sides and about spitting spite at the other, reveling in the meanness, red versus blue, us versus them, and certainly not listening or admitting that there were two sides to anything. Go ahead and hate your neighbor. Go ahead and cheat a friend. Do it in the name of heaven. And justify it in the end. That was then. The behavior continued afterward. Further divisions happened. And in case there was any danger of me viewing the go-ahead-and-hate-your-neighbor behavior as a church thing, a religion thing, social media has revealed that it's universal, a very childish, mean, unnuanced, tribal, human thing. As Buffalo Springfield said in the 60s, There's battle lines being drawn Nobody's right if everybody's wrong Young people speak in their minds Get so much resistance from behind What a field day for the heat A thousand people in the street Singing songs and carrying signs Mostly say As the Who sang around the same point, Parting on the left is now a parting on the right. The beards have all grown longer overnight. Meet the new boss, same as the old boss. Meet the new boss, same as the old boss. At elementary school, Whenever we were supposed to form a red team and a blue team, insta-tribes with color-coded pinnies kept in the phys ed office to mark us out and those, the kids would jump and scream about how amazing our just-formed red team truly was and how pathetic and doomed to failure their randomly chosen blue team was. And if kids who'd been previously getting along started a big, fake, bigoted, real bigoted hockey team trash-talking session, or people argued about America and Canada or our town and the next one over, I, who didn't feel a part of any of the above, felt like I was a different species. They were doing something entirely inexplicable to me. It was like chimps beating their chests and shrieking. I was always surprised at the practiced passion and the time put into all of it, the expectation that it not be viewed as very stupid and odd. But I thought, what was this thing? What was going on? Fake fighting for fun? I didn't feel the fun of it at all. Did you see the game last night? Yeah, no, Hobbs are going all the way this year for sure, bud. Game five, gonna bury them. The lads are gonna be drinking champagne out of that there cup there. 
Better burn that leaf shirt right now. Fuck no. Leafs all the way, pal. Just wait until the playoffs, bod. Then we'll see. Habs will be crying over spilt milk, not drinking champagne. Gilmore's gonna do her up right. Get that Hab shirt out of this town. Go and bury it like the Leafs are burying them Habs game five. These things would break out randomly everywhere. Kids imitating adults. And I thought, you just desperately need to fight and compete and feel superior part of a tribe and dominate and generally scream like chimps. This is all made up to justify doing all of that. The content doesn't matter. It's the ranting. And it doesn't seem human to me. I can't take it even as seriously as... Marvel's so much better than DC. No, actually, DC's the only real comic book company. I mean, who would win in a fight? Superman or the Hulk? Batman or Spider-Man? Don't get me started on how much better Star Wars is than Star Trek. Pepsi's better than Coke. No, Pepsi actually tastes like goat's piss. Coke is the nectar of the gods themselves. Actually, Coke tastes like pus from a diseased hog's rectum. Pepsi is the choice of young teens and Michael Jackson alike. It really didn't help. That obesely hardcore hockey fans cosplayed daily as their favorite players, alive or dead, wearing their jerseys and numbers with these mythical, nigh-fictionally storied names across their pudgy backs. They thought I was a comic book computer nerd for not caring about their daily sports arguments in the cafeteria at lunchtime over fries and gravy, and I thought they were sports nerds for the same reason. Didn't see why. In everything, sports always got a pass, just like illiterate football players in an English course tend to do. It took me some years before I felt I understood this seemingly meaningless, nonsensical behavior. People like to fight. They use any excuse to say they just have to, to try themselves against each other, to see who can dominate, can put down someone else in front of an audience, especially when they're young, and just like the young beauty wants to see just how radiant she can be, how much attention she can draw away from less radiant female rivals, some people want to see how hard they can destroy anyone who tries to win against them in an argument. And there just aren't a lot of socially acceptable opportunities to do this, so sports. They're pretend fights, mock wars, to let off that primordial steam, to feel what it's like to finally go flat out against someone and see who wins, like me only often with large muscle group strength, speed, and hand-eye coordination rather than, you know, language and logic. At Nortel in the 90s, right around when I got excommunicated from our group in Nepean, the guys were running a hockey pool at work, and they wanted my money, so they wouldn't stop pressuring me to chip in and play. They weren't happy at all when I refused to play in the hockey pool for the first few weeks. They were less happy when I played and immediately won without watching a game or making my picks based on anything at all. The meeting very forcefully and overtly raised me not to fit in in the world. And I didn't, but I didn't fit in in the meeting either. The meeting's 91 division wanted me to confidently take one side or the other, and I was upset, annoyed, and demoralized by both tribes equally. Neither one wanted me, nor did I want either of those two tribes. Life was, for me, about being pressured to take one of two unworkable positions about there seemingly never being a third option or anywhere for me to stand. Cheryl mentions how typical it is to focus on blame rather than solutions, right when solutions are what we need the most, but we take actual insight 
wisdom, and logic rather than just a bunch of angry arguing. If we just look, if we got rid of all the ideas, you know, who's to fault, who's did this, we have this problem, how are we going to solve it? And just focus on that, being mindful on what's happening right now instead of past and future. We, you know, if we could just do that, meet in the now and solve problems. But then we start getting into, well, whose fault is this? Why did this happen? Well, you're wrong. No, and we just, we start arguing about things that have nothing to do with the solution. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I spoke with Ruth, the one that I know now, about Charles Gordon and Albert Hayhoe's sister, Ruth, who I knew then. I knew her pretty well before our division happened, actually. Listening is loving, isn't it? It's also scary. So I remember Ruth Smith was an awesome, she was the sister to all the hey-hos, and she was very brilliant, Aww. and she's a great example of a woman who sacrificed everything to make sure she didn't get too smart, Aww. didn't get too whatever. That's and, so sad. And I remember standing with her, and she asked me, she's worried about my soul, you know, because I was mm. being worldly. She asked if I was re- still reading my chapter of the Bible each morning. Right. And I told her that I was trying to, but that I was mm-hmm. having trouble because... Every time I read the Bible, I risked believing something that wasn't true. Every time I read it, I might discover that it said something other than what I've been taught, and I might right. be right or wrong about that. And she, she just right. absolutely not. If I read the Bible, it would tell me that the meeting was right all along. That yes, time. absolutely. It was the path. And she was definitely old enough to know better than that. So. Right. You know, but she had subjugated her intelligence. Well, she told me that she was a teacher. And she was very bright, a little eccentric, probably the smartest mm-hmm. of the hayhos. She had to go to college to get teacher certification. So not a whole degree, just a brief, you know, preparing you as a teacher. And she, of took, course. she took a course in Greek mythology. Mm-hmm. And she told me, I was drunk on mythology, just completely oh, beyond myself. Goodness. And so she sacrificed it because it was an idol. I think the truth be told, she might have called one of her cats Diana or Athena or something after that. But <gasps> oh, um, we couldn't even name any child Diana because it was no. like, it was like oh, I would just remember that about growing up. You could not mm-hmm. use the name Diana. No. So I I love talking to Ruth Smith, and she had mm-hmm. my best interest at heart. And what really oh. hurt her is she had one medicine for all ailments, and that was meeting. And she kept trying of to course. get me to have more. And I'm sorry, but more meeting did not cure me of the fact that going to meeting was hurting me. Yes, exactly. Exactly. It's like that's the hair of the dog, isn't it? <laughs> and, and she didn't know any better. And when the divisions happened, that tore her to pieces because oh. she was determined to remain neutral. She was determined she not to be neutral in that situation. They made her they made her not break bread for over a year because she wouldn't <laughs> agree to them. They withheld the bread and wine from her yeah. for several of the final years of her life because she wouldn't admit that they were right about who they hated heartbreaking absolutely heartbreaking and the worst thing is she gave in because she needed yeah she needed to, to worship yeah she would too because that was what she knew that was all she knew it's not that i'm so terribly terribly smart it's just that like john shaft i'm a complicated man but no one understands me period no woman ever has certainly My church elders summoned me to a room and tried to beat young me up spiritually, smash me down verbally and scripturally and logically, right around the age where the clock was starting to tick for a brethren guy who hadn't married yet. And despite it being three aged brethren men against one young one, and them being powerful men in the church and me being a young upstart, it didn't seem to work out for them at all. 
They kept trying to trip me up verbally and shame me and knock me around and confuse me, and they kept falling flat on their elderly faces. It made me feel like Neil at the end of The Matrix, going up against the supernatural, omnipotent agents and not being bound by the realities they tried to create and enforce. Their bullets, built of purest shame and childhood indoctrination, suddenly could not hit me. That self-loathing, that doctrine, just wasn't hitting home, no matter how many shots were fired by elderly shaking hands at me. Well, when that movie, The Matrix, came out a couple of years later, I recognized that feeling. But their bullets couldn't hit me. So they did their thing. They excommunicated rather than communicated with me. Boo-hoo. You could imagine how happy I wasn't to have kung fu and sword classes I was paying to attend squabble and divide into two competing schools, each following a different sifu or sword master, never speaking to one another again, getting unfriended on Facebook by most who'd started showing up at a new kung fu or sword school the next week, to see Twitter being positively built around an endless politicizing of non-political things. The media people selling everyone a virtual window on the actual world that caters to whatever bias they're willing to subscribe to. Outrage-colored glasses. Hooray for our side. Fuck those guys, just because. I told Melody about this. I took Kung Fu, and the Kung Fu had a full-out church division where there was a power struggle, people you know, fighting over stupid little things, not admitting what was really going on, and eventually splitting in half into two distinct schools trying to poach all the members from each other. And I thought, this is exactly like what happened in my church. And then, of course, uh, the same thing happened in my sword class, and the same thing has happened in oh businesses. God. It's something people do. And so what I've learned is that it's not really a Plymouth Brethren thing. It's definitely not just a religion thing. It's a people thing. Yes. And yeah. a whole lot of stuff I thought I was safe from is out here with us now. It's not, yes. I'm not in a church and it's out here. Yeah. I can't tell you how often people go around policing people's clothing and speech nowadays. That's and, a good point. Yeah. And it's, 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 it's tedious how much of that there is. I mentioned part of what went down during our 91 division. So she knew what I was talking about. That specific guy when they had the division, they were basically pretty much fighting over who was going to get to keep the meeting hall. Oh. I swear that the conservative side, the traditional side, got to keep it because that man was just sitting there crying. He was just <gasps> crying at the idea that they might take the meeting hall and that they were wrecking the meeting and that they were having a division. And he was crying. And although, you know, I, I wouldn't put him out there as one of the great, you know, wise men of, of all history. What could be a more appropriate response to people having a division than to just wordlessly cry and object? I mean, everyone else was cleverer than him, they thought. They had the right answers, and they knew who was doing what. And he was just crying because the, the people weren't getting along, and they were going to wreck everything. And they did. He was absolutely right. Yep. Uh, that that sounds about right. I mean, that's how kind of how I feel when I think about leaving this church. Like, But... I'm mad enough at them because they, like they, yeah. the men who are being loudmouths in my church right now, mm -hmm. they're the ones wrecking it. Are you like me that you look at a lot of what's happening in the the secular, the non-Christian culture, and you see a whole bunch of the same behavior? You can't help noticing the judging. Uh, like, in a sense, I was canceled, really. <laughs> That character assassination, that wholesale rejection of the person to almost want to push them out of existence and certainly out of the conversation. You can never say their name without spitting, basically. I feel like I know that. I feel like I've seen it before. 
One side is scathingly accused of hating trans people, the other proudly vocally hating people who they claim hate trans people, while very carefully not listening to what actual trans people have to say about much of any of it. It's like they couldn't find Hitler, so they're going around punching anyone with a mustache, demanding their target's hands be tied for easier punching. And if you wander into it, you either better help tie the person's hands or get punched yourself. Hate the hate. Support the support. Raise awareness of the awareness. Censor censorship. Speak out for speaking out. Rape rapists, murder murderers, and slap down people who slap people. It's the best game you can play on your phone ever. Digital witch burning. An iPhone for an iPhone, a Bluetooth for a Bluetooth. And above all things, never listen to an expert who knows things you don't, but whose narrative isn't quite as simple as yours is. Simpler is truer. Eventually, keeping your indoctrination from getting diluted or scuffed up becomes a full-time job. I've even seen people divide up under team positive and team negative. Well, life's not made up of positive and negative ideas, people, places, and things. Life doesn't give a shit whether you find any of it positive or negative, pleasant or unpleasant. Life, like reality and truth, just is. And the hypocrisy in judging people judgmental Criticizing them for being critical and being negative about them saying they're negative is plain for all to see, or it should be. Gay marriage is a point of contention for some Christian people, yet Ed and Ben have a lot of thoughts about connection to God and other people in healthy ways in romantic and religious contexts. Because you are being a part of our church right now. You are part of, with two or more gathered, here we are. You know, That's, uh, I've always believed that. and. Yeah. I, I was only half joking in one of my books like that. You guys know, like Matthew 18 and 20 is like the brethren thing where two or three. And when they were saying they were adding a word in their head, they're saying like only where two or three are gathered by God. And like that's the only place that the Lord's in the midst. And it's sort of the opposite. It's saying kind of wherever two or three are gathered. That's in Matthew. And if you go book back um, to Malachi, you've got people being mentioned that if they just sort of met together and spoke about God things, a book of remembrance was written because God valued that. Mm. And I'm always doing, and it's actually amazing how, how much of this kind of conversation you can have with people who aren't Christians too. If you're not yeah. trying to preach, they'll talk about their lives and everything. Absolutely. There's a human need in all this. Both of us felt that intimacy with God in the coming out process, but maybe we had the privilege of being aware of the top level leadership issues of the church and the schemes and the darkness there that it was aware that the true church was not this already mm -hmm. and we made that connection that we're not we don't have any bitterness towards the church in general there's institutional leadership things that i think out of the whole world is keep seeing failure there in a lot of different areas but we make that separation that the true church is not a building it's not a denomination it is the whole wide world and that we're a part of that connection to god through his yeah. his son christ but um you gotta people ha people that lose their faith is because it was a faith in the church but we never needed to have faith in the church that's what i want to tell people is like the church was never meant to be salvation christ is salvation it's this the community we, we celebrate around that so i know you got hurt by the church we, yeah we did too don't worry about that institutional church let's find something that you are a part of and take those healing steps, but it is a choice they have to make. And we do desperately want people to know that you don't have to live in that pain or bitterness of that pain you went through. There is another side and there's people that want to be, know you and love you. And 
seek them out. There's a way, I mean, the contact with people, yeah. contact us. And there's, a, there's so many opportunities for that. We know now hundreds of wonderful Jesus following gay people or yeah. alcoholics or drug addicts, whatever other divorced people, whatever reason you got kicked out of the church. There's, there's, there's so many reasons there, to be kicked out of the church. There is other people. There's, there's a community for you. Michael Vetter believes COVID has been used as a potent tool in dividing people who might well have connected or otherwise gotten along. Yeah. Yeah, divide. If you believe in, in any kind of uh, spiritual evil that would that exists, then it would be very easy to, to say, well, let's see, how do we, if you want to destroy uh, people, let's see, let's find a way to isolate them and then, okay, if they if they can uh, smile at each other, let's still smile at each other. You know, I say some don't let them touch each other. Then cover their faces so they can't they can't even see each other's expressions. And then divide them. Um, and then you know, like if you look at it, it's just like it's it's almost like clockwork. The whole like these people were going to get married. There was nothing that was going to stop them from getting married. And they disagreed about vaccination. Now they're not getting married. Disagreed about how they voted. Now they're not getting married. One of them started listening to the wrong podcast. Now they're not getting married. I, I, from what I hear, that happens a lot. That people are trying to make human connections that may well have had worth to them, and people are throwing them away because of stupid tribalism, little identifiers. You make everything about identity. Yeah. Who am I? And what tribe am I? Um, you kind of have to reject a bunch of people who aren't in your tribe. I asked Ed about why he likes church music when it breaks me out in hives. Um, I know that from, you know, Facebook that, that Ed in particular, like, loves the, the happy church music. Mm. And I wish yeah. I, lo- I wish I wish I loved it. And I don't. <laughs> Sorry. Oh, that's OK. I, I'm not I'm not into all the hymns as much as Ed is either. Why do you like them? Ed? Oh, because I grew up with them. It doesn't trigger bad things for you because the way you brought up. No, I mean. I mean the the singing, you know, the 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 hymns, theology. I mean, hymns teach theology, yeah. but yeah, for some reason we were taught that hymns were the right way to worship God. You do use another music, you are wrong. So, but you know, kind of like growing up listening to the same songs over and over, and then you know. I don't know. There's a little religious streak of my husband coming out. Are you yeah. saying? Are you saying, Ed, that, that it never occurred to me? Ed, like when when you're when you're putting stuff on social media, it's contemporary Christian music, and for me, oh, yeah. that's for me that's like I was never raised with that. I don't, I'm old. Maybe it wasn't even invented very much when when I was young. But oh. um, but you you grew up hearing contemporary music. No, I grew up with hymns, but when I got that, you know, that contemporary music, I was like, wow, this is so good. <laughs> when was that? How long ago? When I was uh, 17, 18, because I was in college, Bible See, college. That's pretty young. And, yeah, and then I got some friends from other assemblies because uh, the Bible college I went to, they were from people from all the spectrum of the assemblies, exclusive, open, tight. Yeah, I don't know. All the brethren in Colombia. Yeah. And so some people came from very progressive 
assemblies. And they were like, we play this music. We don't play hymns. And I was like, wow, that's amazing. <laughs> mm-hmm. And what, were they were they in Spanish, I'm assuming, or, or in English too? And you understood both? Both, both, both English and Spanish. Yeah. I'm going to blame America for where it started, but we've all picked that one up and we're all running full bore with it. Sure. I don't think that's a particularly Victorian attitude. Um, mm. All this, all this warring and fighting. I mean, they certainly were conquest people, but I don't think that's what it was about. I think for them, church was about death because a lot of people were dying. And so I think all the Victorian <laughs> hymns and so on. And, I, and I, I was raised that way. And I'm the sort of person that it appealed to. I love the mournful, beautiful, sad songs about death. Um, those always worked for me. Yeah, you look at something like John Calvin. I did a study on him. And you know, the Calvinist movement is a big thing based on his teaching. But himself, this guy, he was a rebellion. He was killing Catholics mm-hmm. and like for being heretics. And so that is the same guy that we're still following his teachings. So his application um, went that far. I don't want to look at the Bible, how it was viewed two, 500 years ago, 200 years ago. I, you, you were supposed to look at the basics and apply them to your world as they are happening today. Otherwise, we wouldn't need the Holy Spirit. And you feel righteous. You feel like you're doing the right thing. Like the Crusades in the Middle Ages were the same reason. You feel okay. like you're fighting for a cause. And there was no cause. That, that idea of the Holy Lands and whatever was happening there was again from our from we should look at that in history and be like yeah that was a complete waste of lives destroyed over physical land i watched so, some stuff about it recently and they're overtly fight, fighting for religious reasons so they're claiming that they need the holy land f- for god for allah yeah. and in fact people like saladin who was the islamic side of it almost went out of his way to treat the Christians more Christian than they were willing to treat him just because I don't know what, I think it was a returning good for evil because he could be completely merciless. But on occasion, I swear he was showing off that he knew how to properly be um, a good person. And some of the time he was cut someone's head off and other times he was, you know, sparing their life when they wouldn't have spared his. And, and that game of going through the Bible and, assembling theories as to how we think things go after death and, and all that. I don't, I don't want to do that. And when it comes down to the basics, I don't think we're getting the basics throughout the podcast. It's been really obvious that often it doesn't matter what the rules were or what assembly people went to or what the doctrine was. A lot of times it matters if there was love and as if there was a relationship. And I think Amen. In yeah. my family, the problem was that my parents came from very broken homes and with not a healthy relationship modeled for them. They didn't know how to do it. And to make matters worse, I think that one of the worst things that groups like ours ever do is interfere in familial and friend relationships. They disrupt connections that should have happened. They say that person can't be at the funeral. That person can't come to the wedding. That person doesn't get to be in this room. And I think that that's one of the worst things that they ever do is to separate natural affection connections. 
I was going to say love connections, but I just mean just affection. If you like somebody, you know, they're your aunt, or your uncle, and now you can't do things because you disagree about a point of doctrine or something. Yeah. Yeah. It is, it is evil. I also spoke with Angel about whether the expression of emotion is a gendered thing. She was raised in a sex cult. I'm sure her view of men is completely healthy. I've talked to a lot of people about this. They're almost all women. Okay. And if they're not women, they're gay. Yeah. And I'm not gay. So it's kind of weird to sit here as the straight guy. And the gay guys can talk about their feelings. And the women yeah. can talk about their feelings. And the other guys don't even believe that it's worth doing or that they can do it. And I don't know what can be done for them. Yeah. Like, what do they need, do you think? I think they need to be allowed to be human. Be allowed to not be okay. Yeah. Or just like have the human experience. I feel like there's so much pressure for like, if you're a real man, you don't have any feelings at all, except for True. anger. You yes. are allowed to have anger. Um, but anything else is you're not manly. And I think that it's the, there's a disallowance for men to be human, to be fully human. And I think that they need to learn how to allow for themselves to be fully human. And you said recently on YouTube that anger is like a cover or a lid that covers real feelings underneath it. A hundred percent. And so the angriest man in the world is honestly the most emotional man, right? Yeah. And he just has a lid on everything. Yeah. I'm a bit too much like that. I don't, I don't tend to, ha I don't think I even let my temper out for that matter, but people who trouble me are people who have a persona and they never yeah. drop it. And I've decided throughout my life that eventually I'm just going to believe them that it must be that horrible that if they won't show me themselves and they think there's something horrible, maybe I should believe them. Believe it. Don't look for it. Yeah. <laughs> You're like, I believe you. I'm not going to yeah. bother you. No, you don't. Yeah. But, but people have told me, well, it's okay. It's just complete. It just seems, he just seems completely fake and he's a good guy and all that. But it, I, I've no. come to be suspicious of personas and lids and, and so yeah. on. I talked with Melody about whether feelings were much of a thing in our brethren groups. So the crying thing, that's something that I think about a lot because I couldn't cry publicly until I went through my period of post-traumatic growth. Like I would have been the guy, like I, you know, hide it at all costs, like whatever you're feeling, hide it. Is there some connection between our background and hiding your emotions? There's just way too much deadpan and monotone in, in my church circle. I'm trying to think of women I know and if they're... If they exhibit a lot of emotion, um, in fact, the only person I ever knew who cried during church when I was young was a man, and he would cry every time he got up to pray publicly. That's just showing off. That abs Not all men can do that. <laughs> I, I don't know. The rest of his family was not emotional. No, but he, but he was performing, though. He was on. Um, as far as the women, I, I have noticed that a lot of evangelical Christian women often are, are more emotional because they, they're encouraged and rewarded for displays of emotion on Sunday morning. Our people weren't. And so I've noticed that a lot of my brethren cohorts, especially the, the female ones, tend to be a little bit robotic or very guarded. Um, and they don't, they don't just show you an emotion. They mm -hmm. have to know you. So yep. you, you do relate to that? Yep. Yep. We were very anti-charismatic, so you could not show enthusiasm mm -hmm. in church, for sure. There was no hands. There was no, you know, like, even crying, I think, would have been, that's, you know, that's a, that's, that's borderline um, Pentecostal. You weren't supposed to do that. No, no. That I, I had no trouble not doing that. Yeah. <laughs> I, I, 
when I was in my period of really trying to buy into the brethren, I was like, why don't I feel anything at church? Mm -hmm. Um, And I felt kind of bad. I felt like, you know, I was good at that. I'm good at being really silent and getting really bummed out over death. And so it being Jesus's and it being my fault wasn't that hard. And I can still do that. Um, sitting there and thinking solemn thoughts, silently, dark thoughts about death and shame and guilt and pain and agony. I can do that. Always have been. Not I couldn't all churches even get offered there. That. Not, not all churches <laughs> even offer that service. <laughs> See, I want to go to, I think the Anglican church offers that. More. Yeah, so the, I want to become Anglican, but the first contemporary I need to... one I went to, I was trying to pray. And I'm afraid that while I was praying, um, I kind of inadvertently interrupted my prayer to God with a unspoken prayer to the room that involved something along the lines of shut the fuck up. I'm trying to worship. <laughs> <laughs> An unspoken prayer to the room. <laughs> well, that's the only way I could describe it. Do you think, I don't know, I, I do pray on occasion, absolutely. And I don't usually voice it with words. And I actually think in a lot of ways, maybe I'm missing out. Don't, don't you think there's something that would be more gratifying if you pray with your voice? Do you mean out loud or in your, yeah. with your voice in your head? No, like out loud. Like I, I don't normally do that. And I have this suspicion that it works better or is for you at your end of it. Prayer for me is putting your wishes and fears into words. And I think that if you say them, some of us that especially would would help. Oh, yeah, probably. Yes. Oh, that's a good point. So we, my small group, um, this, just this last season, like last fall, uh, we would normally get together and the small group would consist of like studying either a book of the Bible. We did Francis Chan's Crazy Love, um, you know, something like that. Mm-hmm. This last time we decided not to do a book, but to just pray for each other. So we just went around our little group circle. Everybody had a request, a request or a praise or something. And then we just spent the next half hour praying out loud for each other and you were assigned someone either like oh the person to your right the person to your left we did age order once alphabetical or you know whatever and that was fantastic and it is a different experience um i don't i hate the word prayer like i don't say that i pray because to me that sounds like it's victorian it sounds Victorian. It's people um, who would have. It's people who would have said things like, uh, "Pray you adjust your microphone." Um, that's we don't say that. We don't say you know, "Pray you you know maximize your window," uh, while you're using Zoom. Um, but that's that's all the word was to them, and we keep some magic words around. Yes, yes, yeah. Didn't you find that that out loud group prayer was like really intimate? I do now. Um, the out loud group prayer, like at the church prayer meeting, not intimate at all because okay. it was performative. performative it used Brexit. the special, the special mm-hmm. vocabulary. Um, yeah. I've always found it really intimate um, when it's not performative, I guess, to be honest, but I've, I've seldom done it. But I've definitely known some Christian girls who would be more comfortable doing some kissing than praying with you. <laughs> too, too, too intimate to pray yes yes oh yeah yeah i can um that resonates yeah because this may go back to you know i mentioned that our group our church is getting more conservative there's people that i wouldn't 100 percent be comfortable praying out loud with 
because yeah. I don't want to share that with them because I do not trust they them. They might pray for the death of Biden or something. They just might. I don't know. Like, I'll listen to them pray, but it's more about, like, what I would say. I spoke with Jay Semko of the Northern Pikes about why he, a recovering alcoholic who struggles with bipolar disorder, found it addictive to get pulled into flame wars and mudslinging on the Internet when cooped up during COVID, unable to work as a touring musician. Jay knows I saw some pretty out-there rants from him on there, especially when Trump was trying to get a second term. Just look at what the division going on in the U.S. right now, and it's yep. just... Uh... It's really kind of strange and quite sad, really, you know, when you look at just that sort of division and, you know what I mean? We're still so influenced by American media and everything else that it's kind of, uh, we're, we are a big, whether we want to be or not, we're, they're a big part of our lives and we're yeah. a part of theirs, you know? And there don't seem to be conversations between people who disagree anymore. It's just sort of throwing rocks. Yeah, you know, and I've been guilty of that too back in the early COVID thing i you know like i just kind of lost it i just really got kind of uh, uh and i i like yeah. I, I, you know, I picked up on the negativity and i got mm-hmm. into you know internet battles with yeah. which you'll never win nobody will ever win no. it's just like it's like you know trying to convince your uncle who's a hardcore conservative to join the ndp party it's, yeah you know at the christmas dinner it's probably not going to happen and no Never will. Really. And, and I it. went through too much of arguing with people on Facebook. And, and I'm now definitely to the point where I should know better. That shouldn't still be something that I do. But every now and then you just tweet something that is not going to be good. And uh, and you can't. Yeah, it's just one of those things. And you just kind of, as a result of that, I felt like, well, this is not good for my mental health or my recovery no. right now to be getting angry like this and feeling frustrated and so I just got offline for a few months. I went offline last fall and I was, mm-hmm. in fact, I gave up my cell phone. Wow. I got a landline put in. <laughs> it was quite liberating to not have a cell phone for a few months, but it became something that I realized I really needed. You know, I had to do a couple of gigs where I was traveling and I didn't really have not, you know, not that I didn't do that for years and years before cell phones existed, but mm-hmm. still, once you're used to it, you kind of go, oh, gee, what if I break down or something happens or, but, you know, you look at all these scenarios and ultimately I didn't really need it. Raised how we were back then and living our days the way we tend to now, there are many problems in even thinking, let alone having conversations about much of anything that get anywhere good. Chris speaks a bit tongue-in-cheek about how difficult he has found it to simply think his own thoughts outside of a brethren context and without supervision. Something I found weird, which is somebody keeps starting conversations with you about the flood and how the Grand Canyon proves or something like that, and you're not that interested. But when you talk to them about it, when you start asking them just normal questions, they can't have a conversation without handing you a book or telling you to listen to Focus on the Family, or watch this YouTube link, they can't tell it themselves. It's some, it's second or third or fourth hand. So it's like, what you need to think what I think. It's what do you think? I think what that guy says. And is that kind of like what you're saying a little bit? Oh, very much. Yeah, sure. I relate to that. Like, I'll listen to a podcast, and I think, oh, that's really good. I enjoyed that. And I think I agree with that, but I wouldn't have the teaching ability to put that into words and convince you. It's not that much a part of me. It's not something that I've studied and dug in for myself. It's just something that I've enjoyed. So it's not, it's not, um, 
Yeah. And when someone says, like, do you think this or do you think something else? You kind of don't like being put in that position of being forced to say, I have decided to think one thing or the other. Well, once it's been spoon fed to me, then I can, you know, fairly well regurgitate. I think, oh, sure. Yeah, the flood's real. And if the questions get complicated, you direct them to someone else? Right. Yeah. Like, why don't you have elders in your assembly? I'm like, well, you should come to our gospel, our meeting and you can ask someone there. Right. That's a little bit more appealing that maybe someone else can tell you what the right answers are. Well, only if it comes from the Bible. <laughs> so someone, someone has the Bible and, and everyone you know respects them, then they'll, they'll tell you what you believe. Yeah. Um, dumb question. Maybe there's a place in the world for both. Like there's a place in the world for people who are continually thinking their own thoughts and for people who want to join in and sort of adopt the thoughts that suit them that are coming from someone else. Is that possible? I hope there's a place for me somewhere. Yeah. <laughs> like an echo chamber or silo effect. Um, do you, do you do that? Do you know people who do that? What do you think about that behavior? Shielding your brain from anything that's different. Oh, I, I very much like shielding my brain from anything that's different. Um, I think when I was growing up, I was taught that it's better to be smart than to push myself. Right. And so anything that's not, I can't just become smart, just like with a click of my fingers, then I don't want to try it. I don't want to be exposed to that. Is that the appeal of Christianity somewhat that you know, and so you can just know it and you're correct, you're smart? It's what's right. And so... That's what's the appeal to me is I know what I'm doing is quote unquote right. And so. And it makes you not need to think about it. Right. Because, you know, who am I to think about what's right or not? Do I make up what's right for me? I mean, that doesn't make any sense. I'm not my own. And if some person comes up and says, like, I just read the Bible and I have like five new ideas that, that I don't think anyone's had before. Are you very curious? and You want to hear these new ideas or do you find it actually a little bit? upsetting or annoying <laughs> that depends if they're a respected brother in the meeting <laughs> is that your serious answer partially um if it's some whack job and i don't know who they are and i don't trust them then i'm like eh, i don't really trust you your ideas probably aren't worth much to me would you even listen to see what they were um it depends Maybe you start give him a little bit of a chance, like an audition, and if he didn't like, give him, give him. Okay, how crazy is this first idea? And if there's another four, or I might try and figure out what kind of excuse I can come up with. But you never know. I'm really not good at coming up with answers for myself. I've growing up through my twenties, I always had to go to someone else to say, "Is this right or is this wrong? What do you think about this?" So. Constantly growing up, I would be like, that would be me. Not being able to take responsibility for myself and just making someone else responsible. His wife, Sherry, has thoughts. No, because critical thinking is hard. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> it is. Really it is. <laughs> I think, you know, you, you have to choose to have your own opinions. It, it's very easy to just go along with the crowd. No matter my cousin what said that when, when my cousin embraced atheism, he said that there's people who are believers and people who are seekers. I didn't know what he meant at first, but he was saying that I was a seeker, that I'm never satisfied. I'm always trying to learn more. And, mm -hmm. and as a Christian or, or not, 
he believed that's how I would live my life is I would always be trying to find more. And he said that his parents were the opposite, that they needed to feel that they had everything they needed and all they needed to do was believe it until they died. And all they had Mm -hmm. to do is avoid doubt and avoid other thoughts and other opinions or anything that would confuse them, but they already had everything. Mm -hmm. I can't imagine. No, that sounds to me very boring, but for some people that is the most fulfilling way of them living living their life. (laughs) I'm not sure it's a choice either which of those you are. Um, I feel the experience of finding your own way is like essential to maturing in a healthy, proper way. Absolutely. Yeah. So if everybody yeah. gives you all the answers and said, this is your political position, these are your opinions and this is your lifestyle and this is your life, how you dress, how you comport yourself. I tried that. It didn't work. <laughs> no, it's my, it's my opinion that that actually stunts people's development. If you take away the choices and don't let them have the choices. So oh, I, think, I think people have to make their mistakes. My sister Debbie talks about how a lack of growth and an attempt at stagnation was at the core of our brethren group. Well, that's when the first division that I remember happening, it was because people started dissenting and people started having opinions on very minuscule things. And reading like, other other churches' books or songs from other churches or looking over the fence a little bit. Yeah, there was just a there was a sense that there were some people that wanted to widen and open up a little bit and then there were other people that were incredibly threatened by that and were hunkering down and so um things split based on yeah, based on the fact that this wasn't supposed to be an evolving and unchanging group. This was meant to be it would always stay the same. But you can't. Humans don't no group ever stays the same. Humans can't stay the same even if True. they try. Emily from way up the road has thoughts on forbidding behavior rather than dealing with actual problems and how secrecy and unattainable standards don't work. There's any number of things that are serious that you can't control. And a lot of groups, including churches, think that if they just simply forbid them, then they've done everything that could be asked of them. So let's say that in your church, um, there's a problem with theft. So you just say that there's no theft. It's, It's wrong. You can't do it. And that doesn't, mm-hmm. that doesn't do anything. If you say yeah. that, you know, there's some alcoholics, well, now being an alcoholic is not allowed. Um, then you just end up in a situation that you've disallowed a bunch of reality and you haven't changed it. You've just said it's not okay, but you've left it alone. Yeah. Forbidding things. Uh, a lot of people do place their faith in that about whether it's currently with vaccines and masks and stuff. There's a lot of, you know, we have to forbid this or critical race theory or whatever it is. We have to forbid it and that'll fix it. And I don't think making things mandatory or forbidding things on paper fixes the world. Mm-hmm. I agree. The deeper um, problems. Yeah. And for example, same sex attraction. Right. right? You can't just forbid but- it absolutely forbidden in our church did that stop people from feeling same-sex attraction absolutely not it was still something that some people experienced and then you know when that came out that you know i i feel attracted to members of the same sex it was like (gasps) but that's not allowed it's it's like giving your heart away play on the worship team anymore and you can't you're stripped of your leadership and so on and so forth and the the idea that um you forbid it and then we don't worry about it anymore there's no further discussion because it's forbidden and things like giving your heart away just forbidding like what what 15 year old 
can just make a pledge that they will not give their heart away or have sexual responses to the wrong people. You can't do that. But if the church forbids it, it just messes you up more inside. I think it really drives it underground. It means you don't admit it. It means you don't talk about it. It means you don't deal with it. It becomes like yeah. a secret thing that is all about repression. Absolutely. Exactly. But then, so you've got this expectation and of course, outwardly, if you're being raised in that culture and you know the expectations, you're going to put out all the signs that you're meeting those expectations. But then what's happening on the inside and what's happening in secret is, of course, that you're failing to meet those expectations and the, the people around you are failing to meet those expectations. And then all of the bad stuff that's happening isn't being talked about. So for example, um, if you're a victim of sexual assault, you're not going to discuss that with anyone because you know that within the culture that in which you dwell, as a victim of sexual assault, you're going to be blamed for having pulled that person into temptation and prompting them to assault you. So um, what I learned from all that is faking things and hiding things is not the same as those struggles not actually going on. So you're, you're kind of strengthening the idea that uh, when you forbid things, um, it makes people liars or makes people hide the stuff instead of dealing with it. Yeah. If you're going to put out um, a culture of secrecy and shame and faking the stuff is not going to stop happening it's just going to happen behind closed doors and then it's not going to get addressed whereas if you just live out in the open and you're saying okay you know i'm struggling with x issue well at least it's going to be talked about and dealt with and you'll be able to get counseling and Mm -hmm. you'll be held accountable but there's zero accountability when you're just hiding things away and forbidding things, any number of things can go on in secret and nobody is going to hold perpetrators accountable and victims are not going to get the help that they need and the support that they need either. And, and so we know that throughout all of human history, sexual assault and molestation have been problems. And yet in church cultures, there's something specially problematic about those because of this secrecy. Mm-hmm, I agree. While still a practicing young Mormon, Natalie had a look over the fence to see what was going on in other people's lives near where she lived. It even like sparked my curiosity beyond my own religion, you know, where I took religion courses in university because I thought it was important to understand mm-hmm. how people understood the world and do still. Tim says that in his experience, Christians don't generally seriously consider the very real possibility that they could be wrong about many things. We used to have a lot of conversations, me and the other guys in the band. And, uh, you know, I wish I would have, not wish I, if I'd have known what I know now, I, I, I could have, those could have been a lot more interesting conversations, you know, I think, uh, rather than just going with the Christian flow. But I finding, I don't know if you have a few, if you, even Christians today, you can't go too far into the discussion of is God real? Mm-hmm. Without him going, uh oh, uh oh, yeah, I, I gotta get, I gotta go. I'll see you later. <laughs> you know, my childhood friend Curry demonstrates some admirable intellectual humility. I'm actually smart enough to realize that I don't know fuck all about a number of the big issues, and I'm in no position to actually have an opinion. Like I actually don't have a right. I haven't earned the right to have an opinion on foreign policy. 
Mm-hmm. And I think it's incredibly ridiculous when some, when the average person says we have like 0.1% of the information yeah. for you or I to have a strong opinion on how to handle correctly the Middle East or the Afghan situation is ridiculous yeah. to me. It is it is ridiculous. We have such a tiny amount of the information. It's something that you have to spend your lifetime studying to understand. I'm a pretty smart guy. I can't, I honestly can't tell you what the best economic policy is for a country. So when it comes to things like trade tariffs and, you know, protectionism versus free trade and those kind of things, I, I am actually not afraid to admit some of that's out of my depth a little bit. Jenny, having abandoned a degree in biology and completed one in literature instead, bilingual in Mandarin, Chinese, and English, has thoughts on the limits of public discourse and what experts can and cannot do. On the one hand, you sure need experts sometimes. On the other hand, when you ask experts to do something in like a week, uh, a lot of times they can't do a whole lot. And a lot of times asking the same question a month later, they don't get the same answer. That's because there's a fundamental misunderstanding of what experts are supposed to do. Mm -hmm. You can't do experiments that have widely applicable data in a week. But people who don't know anything about how these things are done think it's possible. There is that, but there is this saying in Chinese, which basically boils down to if you get three common cobblers, and this is an ancient saying, so, you know. I want to hear um, it in Chinese and English. I don't even know if I'll remember it or say it properly. Well, if you get the Chinese part wrong, I will correct you immediately. (laughs) All right, please do. So the um, Mandarin would be And it translates to three smelly cobblers will beat a, um, and and this is a reference to a specific person who is, Mm -hmm culturally held to be a genius he was a tactical genius um from the three kingdoms era mm-hmm. I, um he was a general and yeah, i've only heard people, of sung zoo so if it wasn't sung zoo i haven't heard of him. it's not him no um but like the general idea is any three average people will be more knowledgeable on some things than the smartest person in the world mm-hmm. but at the same time like that doesn't mean the smartest person in the world is demoted into a very stupid person. Um, that was said very, very ill because my brain stopped working. But um, I think we got it. It's one of those complicated things of don't underestimate, you know, a group of people. They have something to offer and experts don't know everything, but they do know some things. Well, it's it's a matter of expertise it's it's a matter of experience and expertise and knowledge just because everybody has something in which they know more than other people doesn't mean that they are necessarily qualified to become experts in all fields i could say like oh it was like um the flowers were blooming on the trees one day. I went outside and like got hit by a car. So flowers cause death. Yeah, correlation does not imply causation is my yeah. point there. We, we know this. Yeah, but no, 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 no. People think they know this. Yeah. People use it as a buzzword. Do they actually understand it? 
there is a hierarchy of research reliability and people don't even seem to know that there are different types of research. Mm-hmm. Um, but also within the research environment, there's a lot of issues with confirmation bias, cherry picking of data and the fact that it's a publish or perish in, uh, environment where people are not rewarded for checking other people's work. This level of critical thinking and the tools that you need to do this level of critical thinking is not made available to a lot of people. And that is part of the reason why we're having this battle between science and pseudoscience, because people don't realize that just because someone is eloquent and charismatic and seems to know what they're talking about, it means nothing. Johan, though he doesn't believe in evil, has been forced as a teacher to believe in uninformed, narrow, and lazy, mean, stupid, and crazy, all right. He's got eyes, after all. Younger me would have said that there's no, there's no such thing as incorrect thinking, just different perspectives. And I think as I get older and more cynical and I harden my heart, I'm not sure that I share that same sentiment. I, I think that you get to a certain point with certain facts and truths that you can't ignore that if you do ignore those i find it impossible to believe that you are ignoring those things with a good heart and with good intentions to feel that you can be corrupted means that you have to believe that there are black and white evil and good things and i and i really don't at all. I think that there um, are people that we disagree with. And I think that um, it's it's a, a sometimes a fine line to walk between making sure that you're exposed to a variety of viewpoints and at the same time, not engaging in discussions that are just going to make you feel worse about yourself or will bring out the worst in you. And I, I, I think we all have those kind of conversations. And I think that if we're, if we're lucky and we're smart, we can sometimes even identify in the moment that, you know what, this, this discussion isn't bringing out the best in me and I need to pull away from it. And it's hard to pull away. Isn't it? Isn't it hard? Is it hard to give up an argument or a fight? It is. It is so hard. You, you want to reason with people you you want them to know that they're wrong even more than you want them to know that there is a right answer and it's so hard to let that go i would say that i'm human and i have i'm just as guilty as anybody else of taking an argument farther than i should i like to think that i'm getting better at um, walking away i think i'm very lucky i've been helped and i have a number of friends who have very very different perspectives on on life in general than I do and certainly on different parts of it I've, I've got friends who are different than me politically you know, philosophically even morally and, and I, I do have those kind of conversations and I think those make me a better person I, I think that they strengthen me because I, I can kind of walk a few feet in their in their footsteps and and I know that we're not always going to agree but at the same time as I get older <laughs> I guess I just, I feel more and more that I am right about the things that I have cemented into place. When you're young, you're, you're learning stuff, you're maturing, you're figuring things out, you're learning about the world. And then as we start to get older, the world starts to get smaller, doesn't it? And we start to sort of shrink down into this little bubble 
and and we form these these values and these values get cemented into our being. They become a part of who we are. And changing those values or challenging those values becomes a challenge to us. It becomes personal. And um, I, I don't think you can really, it's hard to avoid that. There are ways that you can minimize it. Uh, you can minimize it by exposing yourself to other values. You can minimize it by traveling, getting out of your house, by making an effort to educate yourself, by understanding how facts themselves can be manipulated and how incredibly powerful words are. I think doing those things can help to stave off that inevitable shrinking of our worldview. I think the whole concept of evil is absolute nonsense. It's just an excuse, isn't it? I think to pursue this ideology that there is no evil and things are just what you think they are with any integrity at all, one would have to also say that the concept of good, goodness, value, and love itself are lazy, silly ideas too. To do otherwise is to believe in light but not darkness, in high but not low, in sense but not nonsense, in sanity but not insanity. I talked to Evan about how this failure to acknowledge evil means we're unable to believe in good either, even when we're trying to make superhero movies and science fiction movies that feature characters who we want to be seen as good. I've seen that tweet sort of circulate, right? Uh, anyone who thinks that the world can be neatly divided into goodies and baddies is either a child or an idiot. And I like... This is hard because I think that a lot of good stories are constructed that way, and we're being very snobby lately and saying, well... You know, my D&D campaign, none of the characters are lawful good because that's boring and vanilla. And there's this idea that movies, all the characters need to be gritty and grim and like anti-heroes because that's cool. And although those can be cool, I think characters like Captain America um, are showing that people actually do like good characters if you do them right. And characters like Captain Marvel um, and Rey from Star Wars, I think, are failed attempts to try to create a good, pure, aspirational figure and we don't, they don't quite make us believe them in the way that we believe Captain America. I think that in the stories, I'm fine with the good and the bad. In real life, like the, the last song on the album is essentially about the way that we do left and right and we're with our tribe and the other side are all evil and wrong and we don't even listen to them and we don't hear their points. So it's about the silo effect. In what I follow on Twitter and generally in the news, it's all about like you'll hear some app and it will go and it will tell you your blind spots in the news. So here's the news you consume. Here's the Twitter you follow. Here's who you're not seeing. Like here's who, who's who you're not doing because we're sort of aware that that's what I find so weird about the echo chamber effect that we're talking about now is we're all aware that this is a thing that's happening to everyone, which means ourselves too, but we're also not doing much about it. Bring it back to religion. We had our beliefs. We knew that they might not be 100% correct, but we were not going to go to other churches and hear their differing beliefs. We didn't want to, no. we didn't want to have our brain messed with in that way. So I think that's yeah. very natural. We don't like our brain to be influenced by other people. And you said in, people. I think you said in season one, talking about your dad, he, he said, well, you can't study philosophy. That's going to warp your brain. Yeah. To hear right? different, different thoughts. And, and I, there's probably something to be said that you should probably let your politics and all that be influenced by people that you have sort of figured out that maybe you will, you trust them. You shouldn't let random strangers in. There needs to be boundaries there. So just going on Twitter and randomly following some guy 
with no credentials and just believing everything he says. We used to have in the English office at work a quote that we don't have anymore that said, beware the man of one book. And I'm sure that it was a dig at the Bible, but it could equally be at communism or anything. That, that when people say that they have the answer and it's one thing, and if you ask them what's the problem and it's one thing, that's suspicious. You're an economist. Do you think there's usually only one factor that causes everything? I, I, I've never heard it stated like this, but I tell my students the first law of social science is that nothing important has only one cause. And if you're a historian, you'll probably extend that to say, and not one effect either. It's kind of like, feel sorry for those that are trapped in a religious environment in this, and in, in their, their own pain. I mean, it's painful yeah. to feel guilty about wearing uh, a pants if you're a girl or having a man, maybe you have a facial hair in that religion and that's a sin. Like, oh no, my beard is two days long. For example, persecution. I always thought persecution of the church was something that the evil government was going to do to the church. But now looking at the word persecution after experiencing it, it's like, oh, every time, most of the time, not every time, but most of the time the Bible talks about persecution. It is the current religious organization yeah. that's persecuting the new branch the new truth that god is doing and so the paul talks about persecution it's actually his jews mm -hmm. that are persecuting him not the romans Same and with so Jesus. Oh, yes exactly so i'm like i don't know how i missed that except i was told by you know the left behind series and everything after yeah. like watch out for the evil government once to... again this is very american We're, you're talking before about uh the brethren movement is very british and I was raised in it, and it was 100% Victorian British. But something has happened in evangelical Christianity in my lifetime that is very American. I think, I think Ben, you were you had stepped away when I was talking with Ed about he was he was talking about like people who have to defend the word of God and defend the reputation and defend the Lord's name. And there's all these war words of defending and fighting and battles and struggles and it's like that these these are not the only images that we could use to talk about being a christian it doesn't all have to be war absolutely but i do think that we're guilty of that and in my lifetime that victorian british um plymouth brethren has been overtaken by american fundamentalism and it went from us not being allowed to vote to people saying they would vote for Trump if they were allowed to vote, you know, but they're Canadians. And, and something really changed from saying that we, we weren't involved and we didn't put our faith in human governments to putting our faith in Trump. That's, that's a big change. Yeah, big change. What happened? It is so shocking. We're getting into that. Well, America, it, America's fun. Like if you're not American, everything seems to be going on there. Yeah. Like I'm, I was raised that I needed to wait until marriage to have sex in a culture that didn't do arranged marriage. And they're using a book when you weren't allowed to pick your spouse, you would have been betrothed to someone by your family with arranged marriage so that you wouldn't be in my position. Your family would have, would have worked with other families and, you know, in your community and you would have been, you know, an arranged marriage would have been arranged. And if you didn't like your wife, well, you'd have a wife anyway. And, you know, and there were even ways to divorce. Um, so here I am in a completely different, different modern culture when families aren't even allowed to pick, you know, spouses for you. And we're looking at this book and saying, well, this is wrong and this is not what they would do. Well, they were certainly not saying that we should follow traditional biblical marriage and stop letting people pick their own wives and husbands. Not doing that. 
Um, we're not doing any things the traditional, you know, first century Jewish way, like virtually none of them to cherry pick does seem like cheating to me. And I think it's, I think some people genuinely believe it's possible to square that circle of just, we can, we can look at what they did and we can do that thing. And I don't think we can. And even like, I firmly believe that if, if someone said like, what is wrong with American evangelical Christianity? I think they've made an idol of the white picket fence nuclear family. Like I've always yeah. thought that. Oh yeah, we're so with you on that. Right. So I think you kind of you alluded to that. So I, I've wondered like, what's the deal with the guns to protect your family? Uh, yeah. what's the deal with abortion? Well, it's going to interfere with having children for more families. What's right. the problem with gay people? Well, in theory, gay people don't have kids. And so in right. theory, you don't have a family. And also like, yeah. I, I never understood that. Like up here above the border, um, this idea that if gay people get married now, it's ruined all the other marriages. Well, I've, I've never understood that. <laughs> and something that I found very interesting, um, I didn't realize, I know some British, um, celebrities who are gay or opinionated about these things. I didn't know that. I mean, obviously the hippies in the sixties thought that by the seventies or eighties, everyone would stop getting married because marriage is, is old fashioned and stupid. And so no one would get married anymore. We just all stopped doing it. And they were wrong about that. And, and the movement that shortly followed that is when there was this idea of gay people getting married there were a lot of gay people who actually opposed this and said like, no, that's what straight people do. It's about a man and a woman. It doesn't suit us. It would be stupid for us to do it. And they were wrong because it turns out that it's the most satisfying life path for all sorts of people. Like I, I teach with somebody who's gay and she, um, hmm. she, they, they had, had kids because they're, they're women and they want to have kids. And yeah. it, it shouldn't surprise people that, we're acting like oh gay marriage is it's so different it's like it's not actually that different it isn't we can say that yeah and so if the situation was that gay people were a group of americans who had the promiscuous sex and it was all shirtless you know dancing in the streets right. of techno and taking taking ecstasy i could see somebody saying yeah. that that's not a very christian thing but i know yeah, gay yeah. people and and a lot of gay people don't want to be dancing in the streets with their shirts off to techno music, taking drugs. That's not, that's a stereotype. And I've actually heard it complained that on pride day, the impression is being given that that is all that it is about. And it's certainly not about that for lots of people. Yeah. Fortunately that's changing, but we had the same thing. Like, like, come on, that's not us. Like Mm -hmm. that is, that is wrong. Like as you're, anything that's that's selfish and and you're gratifying yourself and using other people for your own desires, that's just not love. And that is where we talk about that sin. So Ed and I love each other and we're sacrificing for each other and everywhere we can to help the other person feel better in every area. So here you go. And I mean, it's, I don't know how people can not respect that. Um, like I say, uh, if you want to judge sin, if it looks like what straight people do, then sure. <laughs> but if it looks, I mean, but if it looks straight. like, if it looks like good stuff, if it looks, you know, like if it looks like faith, faithfulness and consideration and that, I don't know how you judge that. So I can't judge that. You know, I hope the Bible and God don't want me to judge that because I really admire faithfulness and uh, sacrifice. I think a fair caveat that every Christian would have to make is I think God has a big role in my life. Yeah. Um, and we can, you know, probably spend an entire call just debating to what degree God interacts in your life. People have huge disagreements about the level to which God will interact with you. If you lose your keys, I'm, you can ask him to find them for you. You know this. 
Right. I am not prepared to have that debate. I could tell you what I think, but I, I'm not going to have anything to support it. But who does have a big role in my life is my girlfriend. And when I say she has a big role in my life, I mean in sort of shaping my goals. Like, uh, we do not have a formal goal alignment meeting where we talk about like, oh, I want to be these things over the next, you know, five years, 10 years or something like that. Um, but I do think that a old piece of wisdom, I, I'm not really sure where the idea comes from, but that the idea that by being with somebody, they can sort of help you reach your potential. Mm-hmm. Um, I think that's something we don't talk enough about in relationships nowadays that I think has been really helpful for me. I mean, part of that is why a lot of us are single is because everyone we tried to have a relationship with needed us to be less ourselves. Right. And so in season two, you have bigger frame and, and, and bigger frame, such an awesome song. And I'm not just saying that because I'm your, (laughs) on your podcast, I'm saying it because I like the song. I like the idea that there's more of you to be made that what you have so far is good. Um, and that there's more to be done. There's another metaphor, which I think works a bit differently, which is that, you know, if you're a tree, some of you is dead wood. I think, I think there's, there's part of that. I think having a partner and it doesn't need to be a romantic partner, but having somebody in your life to help you sort of sort out what here is good and what here is bad could be okay. Um, But I think it needs to be from an idea of growing, not from an idea of you're bad. And I want you to fit into this, you know, cookie cutter uh, outline I have, but more of a, you know, what could you be? And the idea of having somebody else is just, if you're just yourself, you're sort of limited, I guess. If you're never taking feedback from anyone, you're limited by the thoughts you have or by the things maybe if you go and you read it in a self-help book or you go and you hear it in a podcast or whatever, that could be good. That could be some good outside reflection. But having somebody who knows you and says, here's what I would like for you, I think that can be quite liberating, frankly. So that's what blessing is. Someone is wishing well for you and looking to see good things happen to you. And of course, the opposite Mm -hmm. is cursing. And if you're single, if you're single, a lot of times you don't have anyone that's really very involved in your life with enough involvement to bless or look for you to get somewhere good. But it doesn't Mm -hmm. take much involvement for people to wish you ill. And that happens. Right. (laughs) Um, And if you speak against that, you're evil. Mm-hmm. If you don't agree with the side and that division, that lack of even having a conversation is <laughs> the the opposite of love. It's saying, I can't even engage with you if you don't fully believe what I believe. And there's ha- um, hatred and fear in it that, that I'm either, either fight with me or I will fight you because I'm afraid of you and I hate you unless you're exactly like me. And that is again, what Satan mm-hmm. loves. Yeah, I agree. That's what evil looks like. I've heard it said the King James is better than the Greek. And as soon as someone says that, you're just like, oh, man, yeah. we got a lot of work to do, man. And so I think responding to those people with compassion, like their ignorance is very strong. And I think that's what Jesus does, like looking at us like, oh, you poor people. Yeah. <laughs> like If you only knew what is re- what the reality of this world was about. It should be obvious that the kind of narcissistic, culty, marginalizing, cluster B stuff I experienced growing up at home and at church are things many people may experience, and not just in those sorts of places. People who are not Plymouth Brethren people may well find themselves losing friend circles and even jobs 
undergoing character assassination for joking about the unjokeable about thing, for mentioning the unmentionable thing, or not bowing down to the sacred cow in the right way with the right markers of tribalistic allegiance and respect. This seems to be broader in application than just that. You don't have to act like a victim, and most likely shouldn't, even if you absolutely fit the dictionary definition of one, but you might have to get surprisingly firm and even terse with people in order to keep your personal boundaries and ethics standing. You might be surprised to find people trying to silence all talk that isn't what they consider positive. You might find people feeling absolutely entitled to exert pressure on you to let them make quite personal choices for you. I spoke with various people about whether or not they feel they expose their brains on the regular to the thoughts of others, particularly people they're not going to agree with. I absolutely know people who go out of their way to never hear the thoughts of people who hold a different opinion. I like to think that I don't do that, but you know what? Sometimes I absolutely do. Um, what's it all about? Well, for me, sometimes I just need a break. You know, like I try to listen to, uh, in terms of like political spectrum, I try to listen to news sources from both sides. And um, sometimes I get so angry or upset um, with an opposing viewpoint, especially opinions presented as news, which is so common these days, um, that I need to have a break. So I do. The one is, is vaccines love me, this I know, for the CDC tells me so. Yes. Uh, <laughs> Vaccines love me, this I know, for the CDC tells me so. Fabric masks on face belongs, we are weak but COVID strong. Yes, Pfizer loves me, yes, Pfizer loves me, yes. And the other is, like you say, the, the reptilian aliens are out to get us. There are some people who, again, especially uh, when it comes to politics, these things become so personal. Any thoughts or opinions that are different than your own become an attack on you as a person and that makes people angry and uncomfortable and they don't want to hear it they don't want to participate in that so they surround themselves with voices that make them feel good about the decisions and the thoughts that they have sometimes it's very intentional sometimes it's just accidental you know like we love to read things that validate our worldview, and so the more we read them the more we come across and it's very easy to find certain uh, websites that if you just read those those sites those blogs or that social media you would think that a boy everybody really thinks like you and that b what you're thinking must be right um simply because you've been in that bubble you know what do you have to say about the fact that during covid everyone's supposedly quoting the science and everyone disagrees and wants different things but they're all supposedly saying believe the science and we don't know what the science is anymore well First of all, can the people who are yelling believe the science actually point out their sources? 
Like not not just like the internet or the television newscaster. Those are not sources.、Mm-hmm. Sources are the people who originated the, the information. And then if you cannot point out your sources, you need to examine your own opinions. There are a lot of things where I I, I fall into those holes too. I I hear something and I believe it, or like I hear something and my instinctual reaction is to lash out against it because it goes against what I think and what I believe. But taking ten minutes to look up some sources and then gauge whether or not those sources are trustworthy has actually changed my mind on a lot of things. I do use the phrase "I don't understand" or "Oh, it boggles my mind." Sometimes, when referring to you know a group of people or an organization or、uh, a philosophy that is opposite of mine, but if I pause, sometimes I do understand because my views. And my political leanings, and you know all of that, it's all so different now from what it was when I was younger. I mean, even from my early twenties, my views are so dramatically different. So it's like, okay, if I if I do pause and think about it, I can actually see where the other side is coming from very often because that is my background, right? Talking about a lefty、mm-hmm. trying to re- relate to righties. Quite often, it's like okay, I can actually. For you, it's the past, so you can't talk to right wingers without feeling like it's something you've moved on from, and it's from your past,、yeah. and they should also move on. It's that's going to be make it hard to relate to them because, for them, sometimes this is like a born again experience, come to Jesus experience. They they saw some guy on YouTube, and now they're going right wing, and it's freeing, it's liberating, and all that. Well, I know that a lot of people would would look at their lefty or progressive stuff as college indulgences or childhood stuff or adolescent nonsense. That now that they have kids, they know how the world really works. And so, I think both sides are going to have a problem if they view the other side as have, that they've out evolved it. They've moved beyond what the other side are are saying.、Mm-hmm. I think what's really helpful in these kinds of discussion is also understanding the emotions that are involved. I know、yeah. that we're not supposed to talk about emotions when it comes to things like politics or、um, worldviews and so on. It's supposed to be emotion-free, but at the end of the day, we're all human beings, and we are none of what we do or say is ever free of emotion. Right? We're not、yeah. capable of that. So, what is helpful, I think, is tapping into the emotion that's going on behind that. Inflammatory discussion, or you know, that opinion, or that conspiracy theory, or whatever it is that you're going. Oh my goodness, this just boggles my mind. It's like, okay, what emotional state is that person coming from?、Because、Imagine often, if people running for positions of power were to start using emotion to get elected. Oh yeah, exactly. Right, they do it all the time. It's just like if I can actually connect with that person's emotion. Then I can understand what experience they're having, and I can relate to them a little bit more. Even if I don't, if, even if that conspiracy theory makes no sense to me,、mm-hmm. I can relate to the sense of fear,、um, confusion, and anxiety that maybe contributed to throwing them into that conspiracy theory. That conspiracy theory might give them comfort.、Mm-hmm. You a know, lot, a lot of it、uh, answers fear. Exactly. So. Sometimes I think it's more useful to actually speak to that、mm-hmm. than the actual 
topic. You know, it, it, it's not good to avoid topics of discussion, but sometimes we do make more headway when we understand what emotional or mental space that person is coming from. And then we can empathize and have more compassion. We don't need to agree with them, but we can empathize and have more compassion. About the fear, um, if we deny it, it tends to make things worse. And so when you were feeling that people in your church were judging you, to have someone admit that, that that's a tool that you need. Otherwise, you might think you're just being paranoid. And when it comes to yeah, these I- conspiracy theories and so on, a lot of times the theory may be sketchy as hell, but the actual fear that it's approaching, um, like the idea that someone's paranoid about what's happening with their phones or paranoid about what the government is doing or big corporations, um, maybe it would help to acknowledge the fear and say, yeah, there's reasons to be suspicious about this. But your specific answer to what's going on doesn't seem to hold up, but we're all seeing the same thing and we're all concerned and it doesn't look good. That probably would be a great way for people to connect. Um, yeah, you need to validate. That's what I'm learning in life. Hmm. And especially as a parent is if you don't validate the emotion, yeah, you can't get anywhere with the discussion and the relationship begins to deteriorate. Mm-hmm. So you need to validate that emotion because any set of emotions is valid. I mean, yeah. I think we often try to look at people and say like, Oh no, like you have no right to feel fear. We in don't, this choose, no we don't exactly. choose to guard our hearts or not. Like none, none of these things are things that we have control over. And I can't believe that we're assuming or acting as if we have control over all of it. I couldn't believe it. Um, someone was reading a parenting book, so it must've been true, but what he told me is that his little daughter, she'd be saying like, I want to watch cartoons. And he would say like, no, you can't because it's school or whatever. And she would keep repeating, I want to watch cartoons. And he kept repeating, you can't. What the book recommended he do is she says, I want to watch cartoons. He would say, you can't. So then she repeats, I want to watch cartoons. And he would say, you want to watch cartoons because you love cartoons. And you're very disappointed that you can't watch the cartoon. And, mm-hmm. and I get that, but you can't. Like, but I want to watch cartoons. Yeah, you do want to watch the cartoons. I know, but you can't. And that helped. Now, I, I, I often kind of make fun of reflective listening because it's a pet peeve of mine that it always makes me more angry when someone says, you know, you just swore and someone says, you know, it sounds to me like you might be a little bit angry. Like that makes me much more angry that they're acting like that because I feel condescended <laughs> to you. I feel like I hope I, I thought I'd made it very clear that I was angry, but when it's more in the heat of the moment, especially with kids, what you're yeah, talking about, I completely get that. Or, or any of these sort of political things where there's high stakes and we're not just chatting. Um, yeah. instead of saying like, well, I sense, you know, I'm, I'm Marina Sirius on Star Trek Next Generation and I, I sense that you're feeling uncomfortable. Like, I don't think that's the game, but the game might be something like, I can see how that would be very frustrating or I could see why you wouldn't like, you know, just the idea that I can put myself in your shoes and I get that. I think yeah, that, that you earns you something. You have to tailor what you're saying to your audience. I mean, you, you can't use the same language with an adult that you would use with no. a child. Of course, it's going to be infuriating and people do not like to be infantilized. No. Nope. So y- you absolutely have to use more grown up language when you're with grown ups. And I mean, it's going to make you look stupid if you're talking to an adult like they're a kid, right? It's not. Well, I love the word infantilized because not only as a teacher do I feel very guilty about the degree to which we infantilize adolescents. Like I think we treat them as if they're not capable of all sorts of things. Um, we treat them like little children because that when we do, they act like little children. Um, and yeah. asking more of them often, they'll give you more. But 
when I see the people giving their political speeches, I think we're being infantilized heavily. And certainly throughout COVID, every time someone got in front of a camera, um, I felt like they were talking down to people that were at least as intelligent as they were. Often the mm-hmm. people from the podiums were not virologists or experts of any kind. They were just there to tell you the news and they talked to us like we weren't capable of understanding anything. And I think that mm-hmm. we're, we're sort of getting used to being infantilized by people in positions of power. Mm-hmm. I agree, especially with COVID. It's like, okay, can you give me actual numbers and figures and like real scientific and medical data? I can handle that. Mm-hmm. I don't need all of this watered down mumbo jumbo that at the end of the day, you're talking in circles and it doesn't make any sense. And I think, I think it's obvious that what they are people, it sounds conspiracy theory, but when people say well, what they want is compliance and belief rather than to inform I think that's kind of true, actually. I don't think we can argue about that. When it comes to the topic of masks, all politics aside, the agenda is always whatever side is talking to try to control behavior and belief. And it's not about informing people about the science or the facts. And I think we know that. I think we've lost Mm -hmm. a huge amount of faith in our authority figures of all all of our authority Mm -hmm. figures. We sort of know that people play the game. Yeah. Yeah. Very disappointed. And certain federal and provincial authority figures right now, for sure. I use different social media platforms differently. So Instagram, I usually used for personal stuff, although I've stopped doing that. I've stopped even scrolling through my personal feed and I just use it to distract myself with videos. Mm-hmm. The So whatever comes up, you know, you can easily swipe away what you're not interested in. Mm-hmm. For Twitter, I follow a bunch of different things, but it's mostly maybe Twitter is my most like validating social media. Like I want to read things that agree with me or that not, not you just agree with what I think, but lead me towards people who might say things new for me that would be interesting. So that's important to me. Yeah. That I'm looking for people to say something I haven't heard a thousand times. Yes. And yeah, if I, if I get tired of what you're saying, cause it's always the same, I'm going to stop following. I don't want to hear True. the same thing over and over. But that's what I, I want. And I feel very much that Twitter is trying to figure out what it thinks I want and what it wants me to look yes. at. And that, I think that's a very aggressive algorithm, Twitter. And yes. I think that Twitter robotically, relentlessly preys on my sense of outrage. So it's pretty mm-hmm. much, I know that when I wake up in the morning, if I go straight to Twitter, it's going to be like, what will be the thing that will outrage me the most is what it's doing. Mm-hmm. And that works a lot of the time. So I'm really trying to pay attention to that. Yeah. So like concrete example, I'm teaching Lord of the Flies today. And what, what does Twitter tell me? The Ottawa Carlton District School Board yeah. has banned Lord of the Flies from its curriculum. So the first thing I do is like, ah, oh, damn it, those idiots. And now they're going to tell me right. I can't teach it. And what about? And then I thought, wait a second. There are no books in or out of the curriculum. So this is civilians talking, not educators. So Mm. I'm suspicious right there. And I went and checked and realized there's an enormous difference between the Ottawa Carlton District School Board and some Ottawa public libraries. Right. And yet, which one got all the outrage? Which one got all the clicks? Which one is getting shared all over America? The idea that this one school board is forbidding this book when in fact no one's forbidding the book it's just some public libraries are putting warning labels or they don't want it in their library and you can get it somewhere else like right. anyone goes to libraries anymore anyway um but everyone goes to school and there's curriculum but you know as well as i that 
it doesn't say Shakespeare or not Shakespeare in the curriculum. Right. I get caught up in those things too, where the same thing happened to me today, a headline. And I told Paul about it. I'm like, can you believe this? What this headline said? Mm-hmm. And I'm finding that a lot too, where I'm just not reading the news outlets anymore because right. the headlines don't match what is in the article at all. Not even close. Yeah. Twitter runs an outrage. It makes me mad because they're not counting that people are going to be stupid enough to not see what they're doing. They're counting for people to be on their side enough to let them away with all of these rhetorical tricks and and yes and that was why i deleted it because i found myself believing people without question without like just saying to myself oh that's a really good point and i was like i don't know who this person is i don't know that that's a Mm -hmm. good point without some context so i'm like this is ludicrous facebook's bad enough i'll keep the facebook i'm too young for facebook it turns out uh which i'm only 51 and so i i'm not old enough to be on facebook anymore like i'm, I'm too too young for it now <laughs> but it's aged out of my demographic i am so angry about this idea of like if you just give the information to the group of people everybody is going to a be capable of or b be willing to execute those instructions properly if you go and you read research on the gender pay gap or you try to get caught up with the literature, it is an endeavor. It's not going to be one week. It's not going to be one you know, month probably to, to really get caught up and listen to the smartest people in the world who have thought about it the most do it. So there we, take are, each, we take each person who's making less or is making more. You're about mm-hmm. to tell me that gender is not the only factor at play in how much money they make. Right. It could and, be race, it could be age, it could be education, it could be talent, it could be geography. I'm probably missing yeah, a bunch. It, yeah, exactly. But I was so drawn by the idea that there would be a discipline where we study lots and lots of reasons for things to be caused. And I find myself trying to explain the gender pay gap to anybody who has any sort of a feminist view. And it doesn't matter how patiently I try to explain that. Yes, we think that there's there's some evidence that there's discrimination of gender. We also think there's something else. Right. I, I study econ. I talk to a lot of people who want to talk about Marxism or students who identify as Marxists. And, of course, Marx ultimately believed, and probably anybody listening to your podcast would know, would, would know a bit about Marx, but Marx thought about the world as divided into classes of socioeconomic power. You know, you, you have your, your two classes of people. And I mean, I don't love Marxism as a thought. I, I'm a pretty unrelenting capitalist. Like, there's no doubt about that. But I, I really have respect for somebody who's actually trying to come up with something to understand the world. Like, coming up with a lens is is a worthy endeavor. And and so I don't have a problem with that. But I think you need to be humble about how much you think it could be or what its shortcomings are. And I think that's. You said about Thomas Sowell, about the left is an appealing ideology. I don't know if he quite said that, but th- that was sort of your reading of, of, of what he was saying. I think he did, yeah. He, sa- he said that the left has a more appealing worldview than the right, right. but it doesn't work. You can't, right. make, you can't make that utopia happen. And so I think I'd be fair in saying, at least in the last few hundred years, Nobody has shaped the left wing quite as much as, as Marx in terms of a, a, a political philosophy. It's appealing to think of yourself as an underdog, for sure, who has a chance to overcome. That's an appealing story. And 
there's probably some things that he gets right and that there there are power structures that we should think about. But again, boiling it down to one thing, when it was interesting a second ago when you said, beware the man with the one book, you said your first thought was the Bible. My first thought was the Communist Manifesto. And I guess that just speaks to, you know, the circles I swim in. There needs to be more to the picture. I'm in a discipline where we celebrate people numerically and rigorously teasing out the effect of one variable on another because we're interested in multiple explanations for something. And we want to know what are the top four things causing this? So if you're going to take the gender pay gap, what are the top four things um, that determine wage? And Thomas Sowell would further be annoying and come Mm -hmm. in and tell us which of the things we're tempted to do might not work even though we mm-hmm. want them to work. So, for example, we see poverty, and everybody's right. like, we want to fix poverty. So we say, well, how you fix poverty is you give them money. And mm-hmm. Thomas Sowell says that has never worked. Right. Yeah. And, and, and other people say, what fixes poverty? Communism. And Thomas Sowell says that has never worked. And you can say, well, I can I can make it work. We'll, we'll make it work. And he's saying, I'm not convinced that you can take that one hammer and get all those screw nails screwed in properly with it. Right. Yeah. And it's like, as far as determining your wage goes, education is going to play a huge factor. I just, you know, I I work on a introductory economics book. The textbook tries to explain some inequality and some leading factors. We know that education pays off in general, on average. That's not to say there hasn't been somebody who went and got a PhD in literature and ended up working at Starbucks. I'm not saying there's no exceptions, but on average, which is something we should think about. Okay, so education's helping. Marriage is helping, right? We know that married couples are typically doing better than bachelors. We know that having two parents that support you, whether they live together or not, especially from a teacher's point of view, I can see that any kid who has two parents batting for them, even if they don't even live in the same town, if there's two parents that are helping, that Mm -hmm. is enormously beneficial. That's right. Yeah. Yeah. So household structure is really important. Um and, and you can keep going. I mean, the geography in the States, that's a big thing. In Canada, that's less of a thing, but not totally irrelevant. I mean, there's better and worse places to live in Canada, too. I mean, I've always been so drawn to that. I, I love the idea that there's multiple reasons. One of my annoying sayings is that you can't do science without generalizing. I don't get that because all the science that I've seen is extremely pinpoint picky one single thing and i'm thinking of softer sciences like sociology i'm thinking of economics how do you do economics without generalizing how do you do economics at all should we be doing economics at all you know all of these questions i'm gonna ask evan evan was already interviewed for the podcast and he's getting his phd in economics and uh, thinks that economics of course can tell us many things but this is where we start looking at a person or a family or a job or an education or something like this, where you have to generalize a lot to, because you're looking at groups of people mm-hmm. and, and especially you can't really do ancient wisdom without generalizing. So you say these things like do unto others as you would have them do unto you. Of course, you can effortlessly find circumstances in which that's wrong. So C.S. Lewis comedically said, do unto others as you would have them do unto you, is very bad advice to give to sociopaths and masochists. Well, there is a difference between 
generalizations that explain the world and generalizations that make you want to act a certain way. That was a moralizing generalization, mm-hmm. right? Did you ever notice that? How many really stupid people you run into during the day? God damn, there's a lot of stupid bastards walking around. Carry a little pad and pencil with you. You wind up with 30 or 40 names by the end of the day. Look at it this way. Think of how stupid the average person is and then realize half of them are stupider than that. But the generalization that George Carlin made of, you know, the intelligence of a group of people, that's not a moralizing generalization. It's observations are different from generalizations and they need to be because generalizations often ignore multiple factors. What's it like not having a Christian president anymore? That must have been a great comfort when Trump was president to have a Christian sitting there. It really was for many people in the church. Amazing Trump, how Trump, the Trump, the Trump, a Trump like Trump. I once was Trump. But now I'm Trump, was Trump, but now I'm Trump. I, I don't, I don't, there, there are many controversial words that could be used to describe Trump. And I think I'm pretty safe in saying that reassuring is not normally anybody's first choice. Oh, well, for a lot of people, we had, um, we heard one sermon about poor persecuted President Trump, just like the Apostle Paul, just always trying to do the right thing and people just knock him down nonstop and block his every attempt. And the similarities don't even stop there, I suppose. That he was they do in, not. Every other way he was, you know, living in poverty. Just and like the Apostle and, Paul. You know, writing a whole bunch of really philosophical and theological works. Um, yep. Yeah, sounds like him. Yep. You know, one way that Trump is not the least bit like the Apostle Paul is he never went to jail yet. In America, <laughs> rich people seldom go to jail for long. If they do, they accidentally hang themselves and the cameras aren't working. Um, yep. Or they're black and elderly and then get released four years later. I just think he was an expendable example for the first Me Too imprisonment. Yeah, I don't think being black helped Bill Cosby a bit. And I, I think one of the things that I look forward to, you know, you know, when we all grow up and Twitter it gets really sensible, you know, when that happens in a year or two. I look forward to a time when we don't automatically attribute everything to race and gender and orientation and political affiliation all in one big messy bunch. They, they don't explain everything. No, they don't explain everything. Bill Cosby's behavior is not explained by his being a man any more than it's explained by his being rich or his being black or any of it. It's explained by him being Bill Cosby and he's a person and he, I'm tempted to say he's unique, but unfortunately he's not 100% unique. Yeah, I I don't like the fact that we blur all the things. I have uh, a lot of family uh, down south in the United States who are very, very strong supporters of of Trump and opponents of, of Biden and the Democrats. And it is 
absolutely impossible for them to see beyond the feelings that they have. You know, what I find especially difficult to wrap my head around is how many of my family members directly benefit from the social policies that are in place and yet vote for uh, people who who tear that work down. You know, like the uh, military families who um, are, are devoted to Trump, even as he, you know, makes peace deals with the Taliban and cuts funding for veterans affairs. The family members that are receiving government assistance and food stamps programs, even as they talk about how being poor is a, is a personal weakness and people need to just work harder and, and anybody can be rich and, 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 you know, the family members who can't even afford to move out of a community, um, because they're making like $4 and 80 cents an hour and can't even save up enough for like a bus ticket and talk about living in the freest country in the world. Those things are difficult to hear, but I also understand that I can't change that worldview without challenging them as people. Um, and, of course, and we're just as bad up here in Canada. It's just quieter and different, but we have the same problems. I, I think everybody's guilty of it to a, a certain degree. I think that it's gotten worse um, with the pandemic because people are home and they're bubbled up more than ever ideologically. I like to think that as things open up again and as, as we return to some sort of normalcy in terms of our interactions with others, that that, that will be lessened a little bit, but... Time will, time will tell. I don't know. It's tricky. It does seem that the people we used to view as experts are no longer, they're, they're obviously not as trustworthy as we hoped anymore. And it does seem to me that in America, certainly Republicans, Democrats, you know, left, right, they're all doing the same stuff. And it would have been very comfortable to pick a side and say this, this side behaves better. But I, especially during the Trump era, I really find that there, there's no attempt to even hide the bias, no attempt on either side to really do an honest job. It all comes down to like mudslinging, throwing rocks and insulting and laughing at people and character assassination and, and all of that. So I, I feel very daunted by the idea that I need to be open to ideas that may not support what I want them to support but also know that experts are people and they're up to shenanigans too. For this degree, for this English degree, I had to read some critical thinking essays from the 1700s about democracy and issues that might arise out of the democratic system. And one of the big ones that I'm seeing come true is that in this kind of society, it is very much a mediocracy. In order to get the largest amount of power, be it money, be it political sway, be it the minds and hearts of the public, you need to appeal to the largest population, not necessarily the population that's most versed on the particular subject that we're discussing. No, just the largest population. Mm -hmm. And large populations are generally ignorant. My Twitter's magic. It, it tells me all the most annoying things that any side of any argument are all saying. 
And if the right doesn't say the annoying thing themselves in an annoying way, the left will tell me that they said it and how much they hate them and vice versa. Yes. All of that's not good. The not listening to each other, either literally siloing so that you don't hear the other opinions or misrepresenting and strawmanning the other side so that you don't really listen to them. That is absolutely true. And both of those things I found myself thinking like, I just, I just hate it. I can't, this is there, there's no, like I found myself, I want to argue with people and there is no point in that. There is no point in trying to address anybody's points on Twitter because they'll just circle you rhetorically. Like I never did get into Twitter fights. Like I knew it was a lost cause. And hate is absolutely the dumb thing. They will literally say, one person will say, well, you're only saying that because you're white. And someone else will say that's because you're middle class, you're in a position of privilege, or that's because you're American, or that's because you're not from New York, so you don't know. They'll say any There's n- things. Yeah. There's no nuance. No. At least Facebook has a little bit more space for nuance just because it has more space. Yeah. And true. you have to use, for the most part, you use your real name, you know, not like Twitter. So. Yeah, the lack but of nuance is really what. My only problem me. with Facebook is that most of the discussion left Facebook and it became largely yep. uh, ads and like old people yes. showing pictures of their suppers and their grandchildren and their cats. And, yep. you know, that's what Instagram is for. I mean, it's fun to debate, right? I, I get a thrill from it just like anyone else. But um, I know that really when you debate someone, you're not really you're not doing anything that really benefits them or you're not going to change your mind. It's more so for the people who are listening, who may be a witness to the debate um, that you do it. However, if two people can have with opposing views can have a conversation where they actually are trying to understand and see things from each other's point of view I think that that's one of the best things human beings can do, but I've, d- I've definitely done both. Yeah. I've, I, I definitely remember being the one who was listening just to, okay, so let me write down that point that they made so that I can go home and debunk it. And I still do a little bit of that if only to, because sometimes I've been wrong. And so, you know, I, I'm not so quick to assume that someone's wrong. Like even if I may emotionally feel like I'm more right or whatever, I I don't just assume that that's the case. Does that make sense? Like yeah. I'm like, hmm, like that idea challenges me or I don't think that that's right. Let me let me see if there are other people who agree or disagree or what do they have to say. That you attitude know? right there is what I was writing about that I was saying was often missing in church groups in particular and also mm-hmm. very close-mindedly political people that yeah. they wouldn't say what you just said. They would suggest that it's you shouldn't listen because it might change your mind. Oh, know. yeah, definitely. Uh, I, I specifically remember one time at a conference, uh, a young, one of the younger men or whatever, uh, I told him that, you know, I had a propensity towards skepticism and doubt. And so he basically said, well, that's kind of like your porn. You shouldn't, you shouldn't read or encourage or, you know, entertain any of those doubts. And that was something that I kind of, tried to do for a little while. And then I decided that I I didn't want to do that anymore because I just felt like, well, this doesn't make sense. You know, if, if truth is true, it should stand up to scrutiny. Yeah. Bible says, do not fear. Why should I be afraid? If, if, 
if I have the Holy Spirit who can help me discern things, why, what, what am I afraid of again? Like it just, it suddenly didn't make sense to me anymore to do that. (laughs) Marty Solomon in his podcast suggests that virtually every time someone approached Jesus or anybody like that with doubt, it was always respected and met in a respectful way that helped. Like doubting Thomas is not kicked out. Doubting Thomas is allowed to touch Jesus. Right. And, and I always felt like, well, okay, wouldn't God meet me where I'm at? I was just reading a book and it was a Star Trek novel by a novelist who is also a sociologist. And she was saying the exact same thing that you're saying about people being in that echo chamber because there's so much information and that people can pick and choose what they will consume. So she was describing another culture that, as you know, what Star Trek does is it takes our current contemporary issues, projects them onto other cultures, and then can comment on them um, because it has that distance and they can, they can, they can make that social commentary. Exactly what you're saying now. It really struck me because I just read that passage in a book I was reading. I'm assuming that you yourself meet people who think they have it all figured out and they're only listening to a very narrow bandwidth. Oh, well, I live in rural Maine. (laughs) Sorry. Yes, I absolutely do. And I don't think I'm that kind of a person. I think I'm the kind of person that I wrestle and struggle and grapple for so long with issues that by the time I got figured out what I think, the issues are no longer issues anymore because I'm just, I just take so much time to think about them. That's honest Mike, work. Yeah, I hope it is. I hope it is. I, you know, being the person that doesn't have a ready opinion about every single thing, that's not always the most popular person to be. No, and you're supposed to know what they know. Do you think it helps to have conversations about things that you don't agree with, or do you always separate from things you think are, are wrong? I don't think I've ever shied away from conflict. Uh, back when I was in, deeply into apologetics, um, I remember spending many hours after school arguing with atheists. And um, so I've always enjoyed exchanging ideas, even if I don't necessarily agree, if only to prove that I'm right, you know. <laughs> even though uh, you were trying to be right, do you feel that talking to the atheists broadened your understanding of the world and other people and how they saw things? Yes and no. I don't think you can be broadened if you're not actually listening. If you're just trying to win the argument, then I don't think it's worth having the discussion. And a lot of people on the left are basically trying to do Christianity without kind of admitting that that's what they're doing because they don't want Christ in it. Mm. They're all about like, who's being oppressed and how can we Mm -hmm. make the world share everything equally and everybody treated and most notably they want the first to be last and the last first, the greatest the to be least be and the least to be. They want to do that kingdom of heaven flip where right. the people who have no status are given all the status. And it's not that that's unscriptural. It's just, mm-hmm. do they know where they're cribbing from? Right. That if right. you are a white woman with wealth, mm-hmm. why are you getting all the spotlight to talk about your plans for the country? Right. You're right. saying we should listen to minorities and you are not one. And, you know, and you're by speaking, you're not allowing the minorities to speak. And more importantly, um, you show no sign of having talked to a whole bunch of them and mm-hmm. have and have learned that they don't all agree with you and that they don't all think the same thing. They don't That's live in echo huge. chambers or silos. Either. 
So the reality is that minority people in the U.S. are more likely to be right-wing than left-wing, if those terms mean anything Mm. anymore. And that means there are people, there are people. And to to suggest that we can sort of tell the gay perspective, well, there isn't one. I know a bunch of gay people, and they all have different perspectives, wherever the standing is, wherever they from. And I hate othering people. And so we need to work out a way where we don't Mm -hmm. shut up anybody. Right. Not, Not white people, not black. We don't shut up anybody. But right. we also don't speak for them ever. Yes. You can you can exactly. let people talk and listen to them without right. saying, okay, now, now you have to shut up and, and you have to talk, except you have to have the right opinions for what I think you, you should have, mm-hmm. knowing who you are. So, I mean, it's it's a joke, and I don't know where it's headed. Like, that's my nature already, is to want to know and be inquisitive about things I don't know. But there are people who, for fear or distrust of themselves or whatever will purposely like, I know one family that doesn't currently have internet in their access in their home for a number of reasons. And I think one of the things that someone told me was that the wife's mother, I guess was always on the computer and maybe was a bit neglectful. Um, And so maybe the wife fears that happening with her and the husband fears, temptations for internet porn or whatever. And then there are other people who will only go online to listen to people that they know they already agree with. Um, There are some people who don't really spend much time online at all, but they will listen to dozens of tapes or read lots of ministry and kind of shy away from being on computers at all, really. What kind of stuff am I reading lately, you ask? I'm studying the Faust myth, those old Germanic folk tales about the guy who sold himself to an emissary of the devil in exchange for a couple of decades of wealth and fame and pleasure, only to regret it once his life was up and nothing was found in his apartment afterward besides blood all over the walls and his eyeballs on the floor. Kind of an exploration of the Bible verse about what shall it profit a man if he gain the whole world but lose his own soul kind of a speculation upon Satan's offers to Jesus in the wilderness. First thoughts. It strikes me that the kind of people who I most frequently meet who talk about being Wiccan or Satanist or dabbling in the occult or of surrendering themselves to what seem to them terribly dark and exciting mysterious powers are the sort of people who never belonged, never were part of or wanted by any group so are delighted at the idea of some group wanting them to surrender themselves to it. That's not like me at all. It wasn't about being asked to surrender first. I was born into lifelong servitude to a Christian community. I was never free. I didn't sign up or agree to be claimed and run by that group. There was no point at which I surrendered anything. I don't even want nowadays to join mailing lists or subscription services as a result. Therefore, when people extol the virtues of surrendering all to their church, I mean, God, it doesn't hit home with me. Surrender what? Freedom and choice and individual life path? I never had those things to surrender. I'll be lucky if I ever get comfortable wielding those things like a regular human being. And I think I'm actually supposed to wrest those things away from other human beings' grasp and have them, dedicating them to God and good, rather than letting Christians lock them safely away in a drawer for me. So I'm reading an English translation of the Faust myth out of German, 
And it doesn't actually talk of selling one's soul. It talks of selling one's self, everything one is or would otherwise be. Now, I wonder why I feel like I understand what it would feel like to have given away or lost everything I am and would otherwise be. And what else have I been thinking about as I conclude this season of the podcast? I just watched a documentary about George Carlin, who many of us use as a philosopher more than as a comedian. And it really seemed to me, and many others who actually worked with George Carlin and knew him, that George Carlin had a rough childhood with people sent from society trying to control his choices. Parents, teachers, priests, police, whatever. And Carlin did this thing where he worked as an entertainer who complained about people. He served people by complaining about people. It seems like he decided the concept of God was people getting things wrong and screwing each other over and manipulating people. So, Carlin decided to not live with any expectation that there was a God or any point in doing anything much but joking about God. And then he tried to be a humanist and found that people were horrible, in groups anyway. People were amazing one at a time, but once in groups they took advantage of each other. As a widower, George Carlin died, deeply in love with a younger woman who got him and loved him dearly, and was a cuddly, affectionate old man, living a second adolescent love affair, while constantly going off and venting more and more disgust and contempt for the human race as a whole on stage while selling tickets to watch him do it. Disappointment and frustration are not strong enough words for George Carlin. He didn't believe in God, he couldn't believe in society, so he enjoyed people one at a time, or ranted at rooms filled with them when only he got to talk. And he admitted that the old saying was true of him, scratch a cynic and you find a disappointed idealist. But it really sounded like he wanted the human race to end, just not the people he was talking to at any given moment. There was a real duality there, it sounds like. But Carlin got unbearably dark after his wife died and he got sick, he kind of lived in a fantasy world while hanging out with a charming young woman, but he kept going up on stage and professing to hate humanity. I saw him do it, live, three different times before he died. And it was breathtakingly clever and note-perfect comedy. But I don't really want to go there myself for reals. I sat in my seat right there in Nepean, the same city where we had the major church division in my life, with all the malice and backstabbing and contempt for the people the Bible tells us we're one with, people it says are our brothers, and I got kicked out of that group and treated like crap and shunned, and I sat there at that time and I heard George Carlin scathingly lampoon the gospel that these people taught me, the gospel that I grew up hearing. Think about it. Religion has actually convinced people that there's an invisible man living in the sky who watches everything you do every minute of every day and the invisible man has a special list of ten things he does not want you to do and if you do any of these ten things he has a special place full of fire and smoke and burning and torture and anguish where he will send you to live and suffer and burn and choke and scream and cry forever and ever till the end of time but he loves you He loves you and he needs money. He always needs money. He's all powerful, all perfect, all knowing and all wise. Somehow, 
just can't handle money. Religion takes in billions of dollars, they pay no taxes, and they always need a little more. Now, you talk about a good bullshit story. Holy shit. And it made me really think, does the Bible, the whole Bible, mainly, say precisely that, the thing that George Carlin just said? Growing up, I was certainly led to believe that it did, and the Bible matters to me. Does it say anything else besides that? Stuff that we're missing if we only cherry-pick verses to support that? Was the whole thing written, the, the lives lived over millennia, simply to deliver that one message? I think there are a whole lot of things going on in there, not just that. Like George Carlin, I don't have much faith, though I do have much less contempt for people in groups, society, civilization, and I can't pick the right or the left and feel like it makes sense to me either. And like George Carlin, I can't help but notice that in the middle of all this nonsense and self-indulgence, there's that whole thing where people suddenly get philosophical, artistic, creative visions and really need to express themselves, sometimes not terribly good, not terribly nice, often not terribly sober people. And some of that stuff that they make is the best stuff of that kind ever made with nicer, kinder, more cautious people cranking out watered-down pablum while attempting to do the same thing. Christian artist Randy Stonehill said something that's got me thinking. In a documentary that showed what a self-serving, insane, narcissistic, phony Larry Norman, the 60s and 70s rock musician who decided he could use that medium to talk about Christianity, seems to have really been as a person. Randy Stonehill suggests that God doesn't have to wait until someone has a perfect attitude or life before he uses that person to help others or make art. Even if that person mainly wants attention or money or whatever, God uses whoever he likes, however he likes. He gives talent to whomever he wants to give it to. And a whole lot of lasting, memorable stuff comes out of that using. And the stuff they make is often better than those people are themselves as people. Just as with most amateurs, they are far better people than the creative stuff they attempt. I forget who it was that said if we cancel all the artists and geniuses who are jerks, we will quickly run out of both artists and geniuses, and we need artists and geniuses. I'm haunted by this idea. What if no matter how I try, no matter how much thought I put into things that I make, how much integrity I try to have, and how much art I attempt, what if I'm no use to God? The stuff I make is just worthless to him. And what if some idiot, some mean, nasty person, is much more useful without knowing it or even wanting it to be? I guess that's the way it is. Doesn't mean I like it. I have always been too much like the prodigal son's elder brother. Does anybody want to see what's in the wicked mailbag? What's in the wicked mailbag? A one, a two, a one, two, three, four. Walk into the wicked mailbag opening. The wicked mailbag. What's in the mailbag today? In a YouTube comment about the previous episode's discussion about sitting through those endless boring sermons, 
A user named 8979213112160792090 Math is Cool, who happens to be the son of a prominent brethren missionary who's still working, says, There was someone I knew who took the time during a meeting to write ideas down for a computer software program they wanted to write. Those who knew him likely thought he was being diligent, taking notes in meeting, unaware he was in another world. I think many are not suited for 45 or more minutes listening to anything unless you're already very invested or interested in the topic. My parents let me and my siblings take tons of breaks when we were young. Nowadays, I have to walk out of a meeting multiple times if it's 45 minutes or more. Then odds are he probably won't listen to enough minutes of this podcast to notice me using samples of his father's voice. These episodes are way longer than 45 minutes, or maybe he has listened, and he's cool with it, and that's why he's commenting. I'll never know. On today's topic, my cousin Dave says, I think part of being in an echo chamber is their mind automatically dismisses all other opinions or evidence. It's like a mental block, a cognitive dissonance, not really an aware choice at this point. As most of our relatives are raving conspiracy nuts on Facebook, Dave knows... I know what he's talking about. So does the government, Dave, and China. Jane, who has similar relatives to Dave's and mine, says, When I told my cousin, who doesn't believe in COVID, I was vaccinated, he deleted me right away and PM'd me to tell me I was a retarded sheep and to let me know I am out of his life, so I would say it is awfully destructive, yet fairly silent after the initial blow-up. I've also asked people questions about their ideas I didn't follow, like, may I inquire how you came to that position? I don't know much about it. And their response has been to tell me I am worshipping the other side and that I am not worth their time. People want their echo chambers, and even the possibility that someone might disagree seems to be enough to turn them away from discussion. Emily from up the road says they shut down any conversations they don't like by expressing upset or offense, or by remaining silent when a response is socially appropriate. Alternately, they may leave the room. Passive-aggressive tactics. Marcia says, I've noticed this happening with two churches in my area. When faced with even the thought of researching the facts behind church membership decline, even asking why, they refuse to address the reasons for it. I'm thinking it's fear of the unknown, fear of facing what's going on around them, fear of change. Very frustrating. They'll just have to learn the hard way, I guess. Sandy says, That used to be me. I was so certain about what I knew. My family and church would double down together and talk shit about people. Then I started getting to know people we would talk shit about and started to feel the dissonance. I developed a disgust for the shit show. Hurts me deeply to think about it. I've been training myself to listen, to understand, and to be thankful for the mystery and uncertainty in life. Not there yet, but it's what I want. We sure weren't raised that way. We were raised that if someone used the word shit while expressing themselves, for example, we were now absolutely free to disregard them and their opinions and even anyone who hung out with them as bad, stupid, poorly educated, and clearly lacking any merit whatsoever. Miriam, having left our Plymouth Brethren group, says, Oh, yeah. As a kid, I was told to ignore dinosaurs because the person I asked didn't know how they fit into the biblical account. If Miriam had gone to youth group in our area, our guys would have bored the jean skirt off her with their explanations of this one. 
Friend of mine and my former roommate Dave, Chad, says, When someone demonstrates an unwillingness to provide evidence for opinions or beliefs, coupled with stubbornly ignoring evidence that opposes what they think or believe, then that person is what is known as beyond reasoning. They are most unwelcome in the communion of ideas. Similarly, anyone who tries to control what people believe by bullying or gaslighting has no need to air their ideas near others. Gloria says sarcasm can cut off conversation as effectively and as concisely as just saying shut up. It's quick, it's clever, and it cuts the person to the quick. Thoughts become irrelevant. It's the sting of sarcasm that counts. Troy and my friend Wes says, I give everyone the chance to support their claims with evidence. If they cannot or flat out refuse, then it's an easy way to make my own life simpler. The burden of proof lies with the claimant. The conversation goes something like this. I can fly. Prove it. Prove I can't. Bye. When asked if he encountered people doing this echo chamber thing, Pastor Shalomi Homi says, yes. But I think I've also found that this group is smaller than I assumed. They're out there, but most people have opened a window in their chamber and have walked over occasionally to hear some things. Most of them even consider the things that they have heard a bit. Some even spend time at the window. But ultimately, most of them also stay in their chambers. I'm seriously considering doing a fourth season of the Wicked Podcast. What I'd like to do is get you all to toss in ideas to help inspire and guide my efforts in making it. Connection and collaboration are, are good, you know. You can, as always, email me at wickedperson at gmail.com. You can message me on Facebook, Twitter, or Instagram. And I'm also thinking of doing group Zoom chats called Wicked Workshops to talk about this. I'm certainly not out of interviewees, as I haven't yet even found room for everyone who contributed to books I've written. I'm not out of songs, either, but I'm out of planned albums the songs would specifically go on with annoying sound effects, so I need to think about how all of this will go. In high school, I had no one tribe or community or group that I was part of, so what I did was take a bit of social time from column A, a bit from column B, and a bit from column Z. That's hard, but it will get you through the month. I do band with band kids and hang out with them some of the time and hang out with computer programming kids other times and people who were talking about books they were reading other times and so on. I didn't always sit with the same people at lunchtime in the cafeteria. Outside of school, I hung out with my younger cousin some of the time and Curry some of the time, and of course, I had to hang out with church people much of the time. All this without being on any one team or really being with any one group for the majority of the time, just kind of guesting from time to time in little groups here and there. Next, in the chapter of George, George managed to sell his house and get a smaller but in many ways cooler place to stay while he gets his life back together. After I'd spent the week hanging out during the school day with teenagers the whole time, occasionally chatting with other burned-out teachers, burned out in the sense of being exhausted by COVID sanctions and waiting fairly desperately for summer to wash over us and maybe not wanting to talk about school at all, Friday, George invited me to his housewarming. Well, I was tired, incredibly tired, and I'm socially hesitant, and I expected to not fit in and didn't know what I was going to do tried to think of how I might say that I didn't feel like it. Well, George wanted me to come, and so I drove deep into the woods on some dirt roads that are every bit as potholed, 
rutted and mostly washed away in recent rainstorms as my driveway with fallen trees here and there, and I went over to George's new place. In a way, it was my worst nightmare, being packed in shoulder to shoulder with a very small room of complete strangers, many of whom intended to get a bit f***ed up, and most of whom are amazing instrumentalists. I barely played guitar before I sustained nerve damage to my fretting hand a few years back due to MS, so I didn't feel terribly confident about picking a guitar up again. This podcast has mainly been a reason to make me pick up guitars. George's place was a wonderfully rustic little place, all logs and stonework, and George had cooked a whole bunch of different, mostly meat-based, mostly smoked-over-the-barbecue appetizers and treats, and we were eating smoked wings and bits of steak and mushrooms and mini potatoes and stuff. I could do that. Vinyl records were played loudly. People split up in the tiny room, mostly into conspiracy theorists, history buffs, and music buffs. Every single person was male. No one was wealthy, and almost no one was younger than middle age. But not everyone was white, which is always cool. I'm no better than a typical white guy that when music is going to be done, I kind of love having some people in there that bring in influences from other cultures. Makes the music more interesting. So the food was eaten. Things beside the chicken wings were smoked by those who enjoy that. Wine and beer were drank, and absolutely no one got sick or belligerent or confused or anything. No arguments broke out, and the instruments came out. Harmonicas, mandolins, banjos, dobros, and guitars. And just like church on a Sunday morning, we gathered around a little table and had fellowship. There were a couple of hours of solid jamming. A bunch of different people sang songs, and almost everyone who had ever played an instrument played along with it all the whole time. Sometimes I just tapped along on one of George's guitars so I didn't feel like learning the chord progression to songs with which I was very unfamiliar, and often I just sang along with other people, all of us occasionally swatting a mosquito while we played. One of the neighbors wandered over to sing Alan Doyle of Great Big C's Old Black Rum, though no one there was drinking hard liquor. It wasn't that kind of a gathering. And you know, this isn't a close circle of my dearest friends now, with us all being on the same page in a whole bunch of ways, but we connected. Hours of playing music and feeling it together. I was not like Ed singing, We are the church, we need your love in us. And yet, I think the feeling was kind of similar to what Ed experiences on Sunday morning and puts on his social media. Remember, I was raised that even going into a room like George's kitchen slash living room with wine, beer, and government-issue cannabis being sung and laughed into the air by whoever likes that kind of thing was going to corrupt me, would addict me, would ruin my reputation, would ruin my life, would interfere with my reachings after God. And I was thoroughly trained to feel deeply and unthinkingly a mixture of judgmentalism and discomfort in the doing of something like that, and in being with anyone who'd even agree to be in the room with a group of that kind. I was programmed against doing that kind of thing, with the threat of character assassination and ruining my reputation if I even thought about doing it. Well, they've already completely ruined my reputation for the rest of my life. Some of my formerly brethren friends would have had to get roaringly drunk and maybe start loud verbal arguments there to handle the situation at all. But you know, 
I'm shy. I'm awkward. I was very out of my league musically, but George and absolutely everyone else there went out of his way to draw me into the circle and accept me and get me to play along with them. So that was Friday evening, this one time. This is not part of a new organization, club, or church surrogate that I'm now a member of. I didn't join it. This was just guys getting some food and fun times and music on a Friday and gathering around a table and singing together because that's good to do. People who've read Faust would probably say that the life, the mutual affection, the warmth, the food, the fun, the music, the talent, the connecting was of Satan, coming from the devil and hell, was what one sells one's soul to briefly enjoy before eternal damnation, was the kind of thing the prodigal son did while far from his father's house. But you know, I think God put trees all over the place around here, and swans and deer and rabbits and rivers and lakes and things, and I like to be around them and enjoy them. I like to see what he did. And I think he put people like George, and he put musical talent and stuff like that all over the place, too. In Sunday school in the 1970s, my dad, who taught young kids about sin and disobedience and God's reassuringly swift, inevitable, and merciless, wrathful judgment of same, disapproved strongly of Claudia Coleman teaching kids thank Thank you God God, for for peanut peanut butter and having them color sheets of paper in praise of that foodstuff as the centerpiece of their connecting with God on a Sunday. Well, yesterday, that Friday, all I could think was thank you God for George and people like George. Thank you God for chicken wings, little roast potatoes, and extended music jams in the woods. At the end of the prodigal son story, the father character and his elder son have words. The elder brother isn't included in the party the father is putting on to enjoy his returned younger son. I don't know if no one wanted the elder son there, or if he didn't know it was happening, or he didn't want to go, or if they knew he'd not want to be there and wouldn't know how to deal with a party or a celebration like that. I don't know. It doesn't tell us. Having a great time with people who aren't perfect was part of the deal, and people who hadn't always been obedient and abstinent from fun times. But I feel lucky every time I find that for some reason I'm no longer acting even slightly like the prodigal's elder brother. It would be nice and simple to think that the real risk for any of us is overindulgence in fun times. But I know where my real weaknesses lie, the ones I was born with and the ones that were installed in me along with the rest of my faith module as I learned to talk. Shame, judgment, and feeling too good to do things that are exactly what would make me feel more human, that are exactly what would allow me to connect to other human beings in exactly the way that Jesus did. And then after the Friday night, today, the next day, having had a little time of what Christians refer to as fellowship last night in my week, hanging out with fellows, people who are in some way your peers, I saw an electric piano getting sold unreasonably cheaply on Facebook, so I drove over and picked it up today. It turned out I was buying it from the music teacher in the Catholic high school in the town where I teach in what used to be the Protestant high school and is now, of course, the non-Catholic high school. And I met a married man, my age, immaculate, clean-cut, works out, great clothes, clearly vacuumed, washed, and waxed recent model vehicles, having bought, renovated, and just now sold his first perfect little recently built suburban house and purchased another better house to retire to next year at my age. And I felt pretty intimidated, like I haven't really accomplished much. 
but in another very different way from last night. As we hefted this big music thing off the steps and into the trunk of my car, which looked awfully clean after it rained this morning and then looked awfully dirty after I drove it down a dirt road to go into town to get this piano, me with dusty old flannel shirt and jeans, having bought and not renovated my first house and not married anyone and being some years away from retirement yet, as the two of us talked about our school boards and COVID sanctions and how nuts it's been, I was once again having fellowship talking to a guy, connecting with someone, someone who was, in many less superficial ways, a lot like me. It turned out he'd played in a small band with Evan. Where I live, it's a very small world, and I like it that way most of the time. I think I'd be a lot less, and feel a lot more, alone living in the city. So today, the day after I got the piano, as Twitter carried on its daily firestorm conflict between the left on the one hand and the slightly left of center on the other, I tried to record this, my final song of this season of the podcast. The idea, as always, was that it would be terribly simple, just voice and guitar, but that didn't happen. You see, I'd gone ahead and played George's drums on it fairly badly back when he'd left them over at my place. And I just kept going. Shaker and tambourine. Bass guitar. My tube amp turned all the way up to the halfway point so the sound would start breaking up without using any distortion pedal at all. Bit of harmonica. I daisy-chained guitar chords together with turned-off effects pedals to make them long enough to reach my new used electric piano without moving it. getting the electric piano set up to record it, I rested a heavy book on the black keys so it would continue making an organ sound while I tinkered at the other end and got my levels, and it sounded oddly like U2 or Pink Floyd starting a song. did my usual thing with ghostly vocal harmonies all echoed to crap, channeling Jim Steinman working on Meatloaf's Objects in the Rearview Mirror as best I could.
and did my best to make it end the way the album had begun. Peaceful 